This is Jocko Podcast number 167 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Beware of that trap. Choose, dear Beowulf, the better part. Eternal rewards. Do not give way to pride. For a brief while, your strength is in bloom. But it fades quickly. And soon there will follow illness or the sword to lay you low. Or a sudden fire or surge of water or jabbing blade or javelin from the air or repellent age. Your piercing eye will dim and darken. And death will arrive, dear warrior, to sweep you away. And that right there is some timeless wisdom offered by the the epic poem, Beowulf. The first poem in the English language. Of course, it's Old English, which is mutually unintelligible from the modern English that we speak, but it has some incredible translations if you want to read it. I recommend the Seamus Haney version. But regardless of the translation that you get, the story remains as do the lessons. Lessons based on war and leadership and really human nature. And we find these lessons over and over and over again throughout history and in different cultures and in different wars. And we all continue to learn every day from history and from each other. And it certainly seems that there are some principles that are universal. There are some underlying unifying theories that bind together and thread through leadership and war and human nature. And the more we experience in life, the more clearly we can see the thread of these unifying theories. And tonight, I happen to have on the podcast an individual with a lot of experience. Experience in war, experience in leadership, and experience in life. And he also happens to be someone that I grew up with in the SEAL teams who is a great friend and who just retired a couple days ago as a SEAL Master Chief, my friend and my brother by the name of Jason Gardner. Jason? Jocko? Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) And um, it's kind of cool because I know that you listen to the podcast. And you were one of the first guys that reached out to me. I don't even know what number of podcast it was, but you reached out to me really early and said, hey, this is kick ass, man. Keep doing it. <laughs> and then, you know, as the podcast kind of spread, I started hearing from more guys, but that was a pretty 
you were the, literally the first guy that, that reached out to me and said, bro, keep it going. And I said, cool, Wilco. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and like Iris is the one that said, told me, hey, Jocko's got a podcast. And I'm like, oh, okay. She goes, you don't know how to listen to podcasts, do you? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> Gave her my phone. She got it set up. It was episode six. And okay. within a week and a half, because of my commute, right. I was caught up. Yeah. And then just dialed in from there on out and talking about it, sharing it with a lot of other guys. And it's been a huge help to me. That's awesome. And yeah, if anyone hasn't put this together yet, uh, this is Iris Gardner's husband. And Iris <coughs> was on podcast number 70. Mm-hmm. So if you want to listen to that, you can hear us talk about you, I guess, indirectly because you were still active duty in the days. <laughs> so, all right. Let's get to your story. Let's uh-huh. talk about you. Okay. Where'd you grow up? Uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps, so we moved around a little bit, kind of settled down up in San Clemente here in Orange County. Grew up up there, uh, swam, played water polo, did that through high school. And then, uh, yeah, I think started doing uh, a martial art card college of kempo and one of the instructors was a team guy in vietnam and back in the day you know i had no one knew what seals were and then my parents had found out that that he was a seal in vietnam and they're like oh you know this guy was a seal and i'm like well what is that and then they said these guys are awesome it's really hard training they're water warriors which was super appealing growing Mm -hmm. up at the beach and water polo and swimming so then i just I latched onto that and that's what what I got after and enlisted right out of after high school so was your dad was your dad kind of like the stereotypical marine that was just like oh uh, no like acting like a drill starter charging no home? my dad my dad was super laid back easy just an easy going good guy and he, he was a, a jag officer in the Marine Corps so he was like a, a, an attorney mm-hmm. um, but but not Definitely not your stereotypical Marine. And at one point I was thinking about going to the Marine Corps and he talked me out of it. <laughs> like, don't do it. Don't do it. And he's like, hey, the Navy, the SEAL teams is closed loop. Sure, you could go to recon, but at the time it wasn't closed loop. Yeah. So you'd go in and out, in and out. He goes, you don't want to do that. You want to do this. Yeah. And then Yeah, the Marine Corps now me. has MARSOC, which you can just go in and you can be a, a special operations guy mm-hmm. for your whole career. What is closed loop? What does that mean? Meaning, so what I just said about the Marine Corps, like now you can go in the Marine Corps and you can just be in special operations for your whole career. Uh-huh. Before, you could go for, what would how, how long of a tour? Would they do two or three deployments at a, at a special I don't, operations I don't know. I think it was unit. like a three-year tour or yeah. six years they would do to command and then they'd have to go somewhere else. Yeah. So they might go back mm-hmm. to an infantry unit or, okay. or something like that. And that's called like an open loop. Yeah, open loop, meaning that you don't necessarily stay in St- the job gotcha. you want the whole time. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Now, at what point did you start listening to heavy metal punk rock and hardcore <clears throat> music because I know that's the first like connection you and I had which I don't know is there some weird sort of thing when you just like look at some other guy in the day <laughs> and you go this guy's into hardcore I, I I mean it's not it's not like I walked up to you and said hey what kind of music do you like no it was just like immediate you just know right yeah it, it I don't know what the bona fides are actually on that um yeah shoot I explored around with like a lot of different music and it just wasn't enough you know it's like oh okay well i'll listen to the doors Meh. 
Stray Cats. I liked them for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Meh. Then, the, and it was kind of an investment to buy an album back mm-hmm. in those days or to find even any punk rock. So I found, I think, like a Dead Kennedys album, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables. That was kind of like my gateway drug. Uh, and then I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is really getting me moving. Yeah. Um, then I remember, like, I think I was 14 or 15 when I went to my first show up oh, at UC man. Irvine. It was like PIL, which was Johnny Rotten's oh, band. Dang. And uh, I, I saw, I, there, you know, and then the mosh pit. Yeah. Was just like, what is this? Yeah, I want to live here. Yeah, I want to get a mailbox right outside this thing and just stay in here at this point of friction, circling around and around forever. And I was like, boom. Then that that was it. Then you know, discovered GBH and and Orange County had a really, really like probably a one of the biggest scenes in the world at mm-hmm. the time for all the music that would come through there. Yeah, or was going out of there. So GBH, uh, the DI, Uniform Choice, was yeah. was guys that I glommed in later in high school. Those guys were awesome. And, and, and You knew the guys from Uniform Choice? No, I didn't, oh, okay. but I really liked their music yeah, yeah. and I liked their message because yeah. some of the other stuff, like, okay, Rage Against the Machine, for instance. Yeah. I like the music, I, I just can't get behind the lyrics, yeah. you know, or Cro-Mags, that was a great example. Yeah. Love the, the music and I like the lyrics too because yeah, yeah. it's good like get after it stuff, yeah. so. Yeah. And then there just maybe that that buzzing. I don't, I don't know what guys did in other wars when. For sure, no, going, music going into combat, to? listening to Kill em All instead of listening yeah. to Puff the Magic Dragon, right? Uh-huh. That, that's literally what's, what Americans were listening to. Like they were listening to Puff the Magic Dragon and those folk music bands. Uh-huh. And I mean, I guess maybe at the outside edge, somebody might've been listening to Hendrix or something. That's or this, a little harder. Yeah. But yeah. Y- yeah, to me, there's a, there's a, this is just straight up the way it is. Some human beings, I would say normally boys, have this thing in their head mm-hmm. that wants to fight and right. wants to break things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 when you hear your example, the doors, you're you're like, okay, well, this is you know, you hear light my fire, and you're okay. Like I, I'm kind of I'm feeling a little something there. And then you hear the Chromax, and you go, oh, okay. Or you hear Motorhead. And you go, yep. oh, okay. This is this is me. This is what I'm talking about mm-hmm. right here. This yep. I completely understand this music right now. Yeah. <laughs> and then that just, I think you can just pick it up in other people. Yeah. And that's what they're yeah, into. And then, and then so that, and then like I stuck with punk rock for a long time, and then a buddy of mine in high school who I swam with, Steve Rosenthal, is like, hey, you should check out Metallica. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then they were like, they crossed me over to where I'm like, oh no, now I like speed metal too. And then finally I found my way to Slayer and kind of stuck with them forever. And Slayer's on a continual loop in the back of my head all the time and it's always surfacing up or down. Um, but now it's like really by exception that I listen to it because yeah. I just can't listen to it all day. I can be that fired up, but still really good, man. Yeah, it's, it, it is. And so then you enlist in the Navy. Mm-hmm. You go to Buzz, and this time, what what year is it? Uh, I went in '87, and then went up to Great Lakes. Did Gunner's Mate A School uh-huh. up there. 
and so I think I checked into Bud sometime in May or June of 88. And April, were you, how prepared were you for Bud's? Because, you know, a lot of people that listen to this um, will think they want to go to Bud's or whatever, and, and they're paranoid about what they can do to prepare. And I know, I'm assuming you probably did something similar to what I did because we had no idea what was going on, had mm. no idea what the training was like. The video, you probably watched the same video as me. If they even had that video, the Be they Someone did. Special. Yeah, so you watch the Be Someone Special, and you think, well, in order to get ready for the SEAL teams, what I need to do is look cool. Yeah. <laughs> Wear all black. Yeah. And be cool. But there was no, hey, here's the protocol to get good at pull-ups. Here's the protocol to get good at swimming with fins none of that no and it then you know like in boot camp i found that we actually got out of shape me True. and the other there was another guy in, in in my boot camp class that actually just retired as a mass chief as well and we would go in the bathroom and do pull-ups in on the stalls, stalls just to try and stay in shape um one thing i didn't do enough is run so i hated running and then i was in every goon squad <laughs> until I think third phase, then it, it clicked, and I, I was already a really good swimmer, so the water wasn't an issue for me, uh-huh. but I was just hammered. And a goon, goon squad, you know, it's when you're towards the back of the deal, and, and they're like, oh, okay, you guys are done. You're, you're done with this run. The rest of you start doing push-ups, hit the surf, yeah. and they just mess with you forever. feel like the first, all through first phase, every time run, I threw up. Because I was gonna, I was like inches in front of failing, yeah. and just had to reach deep and and push push it across the finish line. You said there was some. What, what happened at San Clemente? You were telling me the other day about something that happened at San Clemente. Oh, what was that? So it was like before you started training. In right? pre-training, they said, "Hey, we need volunteers to come out to San Clemente Island to help out with uh, the class that was was out there, and you just kind of go and work behind the scenes with the staff out there at San Clemente Island." And so. I think like the second night uh, I was out there, we were in Chow, and instructors and students are eating in the same room. It was this little Quonset hut, and they had it was taco night, and so there was a big sign up there when you went went up to get served, like "Hey, only two tacos." So when I got up there, the cook is like, "There was only one taco left." He goes, "Hey, just come back when I, I'm making some more. Come back up here and get one." So I ate my one taco, went back up to get my next one. He's like, here you go. And as I'm walking with my tray back, one of the instructors says to me, hey, didn't you already eat two tacos? And I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't know what to do. So I said, no. And then I tried to keep going. Well, it was the phase officer. You know, he wasn't wearing any rank insignia. So then all the other instructors leap up. They're all huge. And they just start screaming at me. And I'm thinking to myself, I've already ruined it. I'm done. <laughs> so I didn't even eat the, the taco. I just got out of there and I went back to uh, where, you know, our little hut where we were sleeping. And I just went to bed. It was like at 5 p.m. because I was like, oh no. Then the next morning at 4 a.m., there's a knock on the door and one of the guys opens up the door and it's one of the students that's actually in the class. And he goes, hey, is there a gardener in here? And then everyone just looks at me, you know? And uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm back here. And they go, they want you down at the beach. (laughs) So I got dressed and went down there. You know, I feel like I'm going to Castle Dracula. I'm like, oh, what are they gonna do to me? So the instructors are all circled up and the phase officer's there. He goes, Gardner, get over here. So I go over there and he goes, 
he hands me a thermometer and he goes, we need to get the water temp. So you're going to go out in the water up to your waist and you're going to stay there and do not, you, I need you to go all the way to your waist and you're going to stay there for two minutes. Don't come in early. And I'm like, hoo ya. So I take it and I just go. I go out until I'm just treading water because I, I'm like, oh, I see how this is going to go, right? <laughs> so then, and I didn't even look at my watch. I just stayed there until finally they're like, get in here, dummy. <laughs> so I come running in and hand them the uh, uh, thermometer and they check it. It was like 53 degrees or something like that. And then like, get out of here, gardener. <laughs> and uh, they did did this like one other time and then they just decided it's, it's, it's not going to be fun to pick on this yeah. guy. And that's what I kind of figured was going on. I just like, oh, okay. Um, don't give them a reaction. Don't give them a reaction. And, uh, and then they, they went away and found someone else to mess with. But the guys in the class later told me that the group of pre-trainees that was out there before our group came out, like they had one guy that they would just harass and they would just make him burst into tears every time. And he ended up quitting before he even started training. <laughs> but you know, you talk about this a lot on the, the, the podcast, how SEAL platoons are just super aggressive and like anybody looking for any weakness. And if you show a weakness, it's gonna get hammered. And then you're like, no response, no response. You gotta, you gotta have normal face, normal you gotta stifle face. your emotions or stifle your life's your gonna be miserable until you figure out how to deal with whatever that weakness is. The thing, there's a couple things that really bother me in the world uh-huh. and I won't tell anyone what they are. No one knows, not one single person knows what really, really, like there's a couple things. If I, if a SEAL platoon would have known these things, I would have been eaten alive, but I never ever say, and I won't tell anyone right now, ever. I'll put yeah. it in my will when I die. It'll be like, hey, you guys missed a huge opportunity because, and you know, and sometimes you know, it's it's things that can happen with team guys. Just anyways, just things happen. Yeah. And if you let it show, you're doomed. You are, or or they just hammer that weakness until that nerve is dead and it doesn't bother you anymore. That's true. They'll get. They'll work you through it uh-huh. in a nice, gentle way. And did you have any? So you 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 were a crappy runner. Obviously, yeah. and you so that was a gut check. That's like me. I, every run, I failed one run, uh-huh. and after that run, every run I did, I just ran as hard as I possibly could sprint for the for until we were done, yep. until I was done. Uh, did anything else trip you up at all in buds? Because everything, all the water stuff was easy. Pool comp, life saving, all that stuff was easy because you did water pool. Yeah, and nothing about buds is easy. But um, it was all stuff that I was really accustomed to, yeah. and so the so it was like ah. Uh, this is no big deal. This is no big deal. That, but it it was freaking brutal. Like I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't want to do it again. That's for sure. <laughs> um, and then, but the truth of it is, like as cold as I was in buds, colder in the teams. Oh, as yeah. tired as I was in buds, tireder in the team. So, yeah. Um, great guys. It was a great experience. I finished up. Did you finish up with dive phase? No, I finished with uh, land warfare. So, so they switched it somewhere around when I was there, which was 1991. That's It was just before we got there that we switched it. In fact, I think there was actually a class that did it the opposite way, did it the old way, the way you did it uh-huh. before. Right, that, that was still there when I got there. So Right. It was because of pool comp. It was because of pool comp. So many guys get kicked out during pool comp yeah. that they're like, why are we waiting until the end to do this? Yeah. Let's shift it over. Yeah, pool competency is something that I knew zero about when... I was coming into the into buds, and they had they had a poster in the med medical area, 
mm-hmm. by the grinder over there, and it was a Texas Chainsaw Massacre poster, and and yet they had written the Texas or the Bud's Pool Comp Massacre, and had like a guy with a regulator getting ripped out of his mouth, and and who's the killer in um. In, Oh, Leatherface. Leatherface was, yeah. you know, like an, had a, like an EUDTC instructor T-shirt on. Yeah, and I, and I just remember walking by it. I was checking in or whatever, and I go, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And then I found out that yeah, they're gonna they're gonna crush you in the water. And what about then? You go to you went to old school airborne school. Oh yeah. How's so, that for you? So it was really good, but I was you know I was really really cocky. And when I go back and examine my cockiness, it was just here's the deal. I was super insecure and uh, and then compensate for it by being cocky and hope hopes that no one figures out how insecure I am. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the physical aspect of jump school, you know, the yeah. runs and stuff, it's so easy. And then, but you kind of get throttled back where it's kind of a boot camp mentality. You're not used totally. to it. So me and the guys, we were going out drinking on, and there's rules, you're not supposed to drink on a weeknight. And we were out drinking on a weeknight or it was like a Sunday night. Um, the night before one of the last, before the final week of jump weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went up to get a pitcher of beer at the the bar there. And uh, the guy who was the bartender, t- turns out he was a black hat. Mm. And so he's like, hey, are you in jump school? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm in jump school. And he goes, you're not supposed to be drinking on weeknights. And then I, I'm like, yeah, well, whatever and he goes do you know who i am and and i said no and he goes i'm a black hat and he said it in a manner where like there should have been some spooky music playing behind it and uh um and i was like okay well if you don't think i can you know drink this beer and do the pt and run in the morning and you're out of your mind and and he's like get out of my bar rightly so kick me out so we leave the next morning we're on the bus on the way to the drop zone for the first jump and there's kind of a commotion outside and I look and there's that guy that was the bartender with his and and he's with one of our guys because he was in a different phase and so they pulled everybody off the bus lined us up he walked down he goes oh here's the guy they pulled me out of the lineup um pulled me behind uh one of the buildings and tuned me up you know I kind of deserved I I did didn't it kind of I deserved it and uh, so they let me have it and uh, then that was it I went back and did three or four more jumps and then I was getting ready to do my fifth jump which is the last jump there mm-hmm. at jump school and uh, the liaison officer came and pulled me out and said hey you were drinking on a weeknight I've got this statement you're I'm pulling you out of this thing and I'm going to take you to NJP, which is non-judicial punishment, captain's mass. So I was like, hey, wait a minute. These guys chewed me out, you know, tuned me up a little bit. By that, I mean they gut punched me and I had, you know, I had it coming. It's all good. And they uh, go, they, it was going to be done there. And he goes, nope, we're not having this. This isn't it. So you're, you're going to go to mass. So I got pulled out of the class. The class graduated and left. Oh. And then this is like Friday you know, they did their last jump, did their graduation. I was got put in a holding company, and then I went to, to Captain's Mast in front of the, the uh, Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel that was kind of like the officer out there in charge of the Navy and Marines going through jump yeah, school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I called my dad. 
because he was still active duty at the time. And he's, and like, he's a jag. And he's a jag. Score. Yeah, but he couldn't pull any strings. Yeah. He's like, hey, you're just going to have gone. to go in there and own it. So I go in, I, you know, I sit, sit in the room, come into the guy's office. They read me the rights. They read the statement against me, which which is basically the story I just told you. It's embellished a little bit more, but it's all good. And so the the colonel, uh, he reads this stuff, and then he just looks up to me, at me, and I'm standing at attention, and I'm, I think, I'm, okay, I've done it again. I'm going to get thrown out. And he goes, uh, do, you, do you have anything to say for yourself? And I said, uh, <clears throat> sir, that's pretty much what happened. You know the statement that he read out and i said uh uh i've embarrassed the navy and by in turn the marine corps and all i can do is take my lumps and press on with my career and then he just stared at me and he goes i find you a 100 bucks for one month and i'll let you reclass up with the next class and do your final jump and get out of here Dang. And, and so you got a hundred dollars extra month jump pay so it was really kind of a wash uh -huh. It was awesome. Um, and then the the one guy that had pulled me out of line and, and brought me in there to mast, he's like, you know, who told you what to say? But I, I found that. And I've always told young guys in military career, just own it. Yeah. If, if you get in trouble, own it. It's when you make excuses that you run into trouble. But when you're like, this is what I did. Most things that people have done, guys have come close to doing or did and just didn't get in trouble for. And when you own it, 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 it just works out better in the end. There's Every time. No doubt about that. Uh, so now you go back to back to the team, or you go team five. Checking in team five. We didn't have SQT then, so what they did with us was uh, we just kind of bounced around. So I worked in a different department at the team, I worked in diving for a couple weeks, worked, worked in ordnance for a couple weeks. And I think I was at the team for about four months. And in those days, the team didn't deploy. We all, always yeah. had two platoons pushed forward and the command was back. So uh, well, I think I was probably four or five months at the team, went out to Nyland, worked at the old cap camp out there as a camp guard. It was a great experience. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, got in the, my first platoon, which was in Arg Alpha. So we did yes, the sir. whole deployment on a ship. And uh, that was that was great. Had uh, some awesome guys in that platoon. Uh, the platoon chief was this guy named Bill Kuhn, who's uh, passed away now, and I really miss him. But he was just super even keel, quiet, direct. You never really saw him lose his temper. And uh, a good, good man, good example for all of us. And then uh, then a couple other guys I'll get into here in a second. Uh, you know, and then we wound up deploying on the ship, and we did a longer workup than it was. We did uh, like almost a year-long workup because we were going on the ARC. Yep. We had to do everything. Guys were normally doing like an eight-monther, and then they do a six-months to PI. Yeah. Well, I, well, when I did, because I did two ARGs, you know, for those uh -huh. of you that don't know, it's deploying on a ship. When we did that, it would be, we'd do the normal workup. But we do the normal workup before we started our interoperability with the Navy and the Marine Corps. So that tacked on that that tacked on their workup, the right. Navy workup and the Marine Corps workup. So it was like we did two workups, kind of, mm -hmm. and it was awesome training. I got so much out of out of that. But then, where did you where did you guys go on deployment? Well, we started our Westpac, and we were 
We had just gotten into the Philippines when the Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and all that stuff kicked off. So then we pushed over for Operation Desert Shield and then was uh, thought we were going to go home. We made it back to the Philippines and then we stopped there in the PI for like three weeks and then turned back around and went back over for uh, Operation Desert Storm. Did you guys do anything? We just did a bunch. So we did uh, the tanker boardings, like you talk about, and did a couple of those. And then we had a a bunch of different operations that we had slated on some of the islands off the coast there Mm -hmm. that we we, we got all the way to the point of doing rehearsals for them. And then, like, the Iraqis would have just abandoned the island. Or one of the times when the helos flew over to do a recon, they surrendered to the helicopters. And then they just sent helicopters in there and took all... Took all the Rockies over, but uh, um, Admiral McRaven was our task unit commander at the time, and uh, so that was cool. He, he was he was really good to work for, and then uh, like one of the guys in the platoon that I that I told you I reached out to him because I wanted to mention him because he's a, kind of a bigger than life seal was Steve Hines, <laughs> and Steve is is he's a big guy. He's all you know. At the time, tatted up quite a bit, which yeah. in the early '90s, a lot not a lot of the guys had tattoos. Nope. He, uh, at some point in a bar fight, someone had cut him up with a knife, so he has these amazing scars crisscrossing his chest. Yeah. He's really <laughs> smart. He's got a razor sharp whip, wit, yeah. and uh, was just a lot of fun to work with. One of those guys where is he as bad as things ever got, he's always cracking, you know, cracking jokes, so it's always funny, takes the edge off of it. And one of the things that he did really well was, you know, when you're on a ship, you're on the ship. And there are some guys that decide they're gonna be condescending to everybody. And uh, you know, that just doesn't get you far in life. Steve ran a PT for the ship. So we would do our own physical training in the morning, and then he had one that he would run in the afternoon, and he would invite everybody to it. And the the captain of the ship came to his PT. The, the master chief of the ship was there. Um, by the end of the deployment, we would have most of the flight deck would be covered with guys coming to his PT, and then he'd awesome. be cracking jokes the whole time. Everybody loved him. We would do, like, okay, hey, we're going to do a fantail shoot, and we would have different people from the ship come up and we would let them shoot our guns and be their range safety officers. So it's like, hey, all the guys that work in the galley, you know, in the galley's our mess hall, come out, we're gonna run a shoot for you. And then then what happens? They hook you up with yeah. food. You know, you everybody- More chicken patties. More chicken patties, <laughs> you know, maybe some extra dessert. And then everybody just looked out for us and it was so good, it paid off in spades. Yeah, that idea of building relationships with people is just such a benefit across the board. And I certainly learned that literally getting extra chicken patties and extra chicken nuggets because I was bros with the dude working in the front line handing out the chicken nuggets. What might sound like like that's whatever. No, that's a real thing. You're cutting gator squares off the coast of Africa for 90 days. They, They don't have a lot of food left. And it gets down to, okay, what are we going to get? We're out there trying to get jacked, by the way. Yeah. And if you if you don't have fuel, so, yeah, bro out with those people a little bit. Everybody. why It's just like no skin off your back not to. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, I mean, I mean, really, that's what karma is, right? Yeah. And good to people, and then it comes back to you. Yeah. And so, so you guys did some shipboardings, mm-hmm. and but then the Gulf War. I mean, it was over in seventy-two hours. Yeah, it was the, done really quick. And the guys in the teams that did do missions, they they were generally like like a couple guys. There's a couple platoons that got. There's a couple platoons. There's a platoon that almost got overran. Did that get overran. Kofji, right? That was a yeah. team one platoon. Um, no, was it? I think it was a team one platoon. But, but was it? At, no, it wasn't at Kofji. I forget what it was, but it was right up the line, and they punched through. It was pretty yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's like one of the. And one of the guys that was in that platoon, I ended up in a platoon with later. But generally, and, and even even doing shipboardings back then was like, yes, you know, we did something. Real world. Real world. I got a real world up. Everybody gather around. <laughs> yeah. And that was the truth. That was mm-hmm. the truth. That was that was the way it was. Hey, if you did something real, it was awesome. And, it, and I mean, when I was coming in, I had all these fantasies that once I was in the SEAL teams, look, there's clandestine wars going on worldwide and I'm gonna be all up in them I'm gonna be fighting wars people don't even know about and then I found out when I got to the teams that there was no wars in Guam which was where my first deployment went to (laughs) yeah I felt like that same thing was going on that there'd be like guys with you'd get there and within a week people be going hey load your stuff up we're going here and loading everything out and then it doesn't happen that way, or it does. You just got to, you can't chase yeah. it, I guess. Well, it happens more now. I mean, now there's oh, yeah. a lot more stuff going on, and it is going on, and it is worldwide, and you see it in the news, and sometimes you don't, but it is totally different. It's completely different now. I mean, we are at war, and so those little fantasies that you have about going into countries, that that happens now, whereas in the 90s, it wasn't happening. No, and and then there were all these assumptions about what you're gonna do when you're shot at. I remember like we shifted our our immediate action drills around um, at Nyland right after the Panama thing happened, mm-hmm. um, that Patia airstrip, and they, and we decided that, or it was decided by guys thinking about. It, they're like, hey, you're just when a, when the first gunshot goes, you're just gonna crawl. Mm-hmm. So we did everything crawling around in the desert, and uh, you know it's not it's not how it goes. Yeah. But n- no one knew. No one knew, and we lacked simunition or or yeah. uh, laser systems that we ended up using. And so it was hard to know. I mean, even CQC was oh, especially totally ridiculous what we used to do, and. You know, new guys like me, they're telling me that this is what you do and this is why you do it because they have theories behind it. Uh-huh. They have theories, theoretically, and the theories are hard to argue with, A, because you don't know any better, and B, because they've kind of pressure tested the theories in little arguments amongst themselves. So, hey, you listen to them and you mm-hmm. think, okay, this is the way it is. And then you find out, well, then everyone found out, actually, even just when they started implementing paintball and simunition, it was like, you know what? This doesn't seem like a smart idea. It doesn't seem like a smart idea for all of us to be standing in the hallway. That's the, that's one of the big ones. It's uh-huh. so obvious. You know, my first platoon, it was like, hey, everyone stand in the hallway and you get ready to go in the next room. And that's cool. Then second platoon, same way. It wasn't until either like, I think it was even past. I think it was, I think it was in, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the year, but like 98 is when I started seeing a change in, hey, 
this is not smart because watch what happens. You guys are all lined up in the hallway. Cool. Somebody sticks a, a simunition gun around the corner of the hallway and mows down eight people. Right. And the first reaction is like, well, that wouldn't happen. It just mm-hmm. happened. It just happened. Yeah. Well, that guy wasn't aiming. Yeah, you don't need to aim. You have an automatic weapon. And so that was kind of the beginning or that that definitely had an impact on the way stuff is going to be. And it's just like you said, like you talked about in Panama, those guys and how the guys made theoretical changes, which is, yeah. hey, when the shooting starts, you're going to crawl. Well, in the desert, your contact is likely to be much further away and you have much greater distance to travel in order to break contact or to assault. So if if what you're doing is crawling, not saying there's no times where you will be sucking mud, because you certainly can be, but there's a difference between effective fire and ineffective fire. And there's this difference between dead space and when you're in in open space where you can actually get hit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's weird. It was awesome and weird to see all that unfold. And it is actually very similar to what the UFC did to martial arts. You know, because because everything was theoretical. And again, it was, you remember some of the kind of weird martial arts that they'd throw at us in the teams? And I remember one in particular where it was, hey, when you hit the guy here, his, I forget what they called it. They had a scientific name for it. His automatic reaction, but they had some scientific sounding word. His automatic reaction his physiological reaction is going to be to do this and then when they do that you can do this and then when and when you do this it's going to cause me that and they had these big scenarios that would they would play out and that was what it was hey when you get like it was literally when you hit the guy in the neck it's going to cause him to like fold to one side and 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 everyone that gets hit in the neck arches their back and sticks their chin out then you'll hit him with this it was, they're, they're that, that's what they're saying. And, and then you can't say, well, hey man, go ahead and like hit me in the neck with all your might. And I actually did do that. I uh-huh. actually did say, like hit me, see if that happens. And it didn't happen. Uh-huh. And then I got some other weird psychobabble circular argument about, well, that's because you're expecting it. Well, okay, but do it when I'm not expecting. You know, it's just, it's just one of these things. Strike the neck, stomp the groin, rake the eyes, re-stomp the groin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. What was that? It was the, was it the scar? I, I was it like a soft combat assault I, system I or something know, like that? But it was, and, and we got, we went through a, a whole bunch of those. And mm-hmm. all it takes is a couple people in a leadership position to get convinced by this. It, it, I noticed, I always saw a lot of circular arguments in those things. Mm-hmm. And it's, so that, that thing, so when the UFC started, it was like, oh, these Kung Fu guys or whatever, these karate guys or whatever, these ninjutsu guys or whatever, whatever their martial art was, and they had the thing that, oh, when I throat punch you, your breathing will be incapacitated for approximately 45 seconds. It's generally about 45 seconds. Uh-huh. When you hit someone in the throat, in order for them to, it's about a 45 seconds, you get about a 45 second window where now you want to attack the nerve basis. Uh-huh. You want to attack the solar plexus. When you get him in the solar plexus, possibly, now you got about another 45 seconds. This is where you're going to rake the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> I'm doing some uh, Grandmaster Ken dude, stick. That, that was it, man. <laughs> and, and so when the UFC came around, it was like, oh, all of a sudden, that doesn't work. And it's the same thing that happened pre, and I'll even say pre-simunition, pre-paintball, and pre, and we used Miles Gear, but Miles Gear was kind of weak. Yeah. Miles Gear wasn't quite good enough. 
which is, for those of you who don't know, it's like a laser tag system that you mount on your wheel weapons, but it, it wasn't very accurate. You had to deal with jams and your blanks. It was just, it wasn't that good. Yeah. But those things definitely started to make it lean towards, oh, this, this, this theory doesn't seem to hold the water that we all thought that it held. Yeah. Yeah, it was just... But you know what? Here's the thing. Even if we were crawling, as long as we had a plan and rehearsed it, that was way better than stuff that wasn't. So yeah. a lot of those guys that did that first, those first fighting systems that there was a lot of goofy stuff, when they would yeah. get in a street fight, That's they would still point. do okay yeah. because what what's I think Patton said that thing about yeah, hey a, a good plan now is better than a perfect plan later right you know that's a good point now that I think about it, if you think about the tactics so you got told after Panama to crawl and that seems kind of crazy right now and in, in a if you think about it as a broad hey what we're gonna do is crawl all the time think about this though remember when it was a whole squad getting up online and moving get, getting up and running all at one time yeah just as ridiculous just, yeah, just exa- as ridiculous. Exactly, and there's a time and place for both things. And there's a time and place for both things. And you know, as a matter of fact, I was at, I was at uh, one of the teams, I don't know, six months ago, a year ago, and we were talking tactics, and a guy asked me, like, hey, where does the argument, I might have even been your team. Uh-huh. The, the question was, like, where does the commander go in this situation? And it was like one group was saying they, they shouldn't be in the rear, and the other group was saying, no, oh, they should be in the front. That was my team. For okay, sure. yeah. And I was like, listen, there's different times where the commander needs to be in a different spot. And where the commander should be is where he isn't in the weeds, but still kind of understands what's happening and can provide the best command and control. So the, the answer is not he should be here. The answer is where should he be for that particular situation? And does the commander have the understanding, the tactical understanding and the operational understanding to go, oh, you know what? If these guys are busting into a building right here and I go into that building, and there's contact, I'm gonna be sucked into that contact and I'm not gonna be able to control anything. Mm-hmm. Contrary to that, if I'm way at the back where the contact happens and I don't even know what building it's in, that's a problem too. Where should I be? I should be where I can provide the best command and control. And that's very adaptable and it's very easy to adapt. But it's very also very easy for people to come up with doctrine and then supporting arguments, supporting theories that, that are very hard to argue against because you get into circular arguments against crazy people. <laughs> yeah, yeah who who become emotionally attached to whatever the answer oh, is. Oh, that's a stinger. And the, the this is why I think NSW has always been so successful and I think will continue to be successful is because we're not so rigid in what we do. And it's so, it, it, in, in one ways it's a weakness, but it's also at the same time our greatest strength because totally. everything I've done on deployment most things actually, was not exactly something that I trained for, but the training that I got was 30% there to where it was easy to pivot. Mm-hmm. Boom. And into whatever, what, whatever's being requested overseas. Yeah, and the training that you got trained you to think. <laughs> trained yeah, you to think. Absolutely. Not just, hey, this is what you're going to do 100% of the time. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, this is going to work in this situation, but you should be looking around. You should have your head on a swivel. You should be looking for work. You, all those little those little like mantras that you get told, mm-hmm. they actually make sense because it's not just do the same thing every time. It's read and react, right? Yeah. Read yeah. and react. That's one of the first things you start hearing, like read and react because you don't just do. 
you actually read and you actually assess. So those are all important. Uh, anything else from that first deployment besides just being on the ARG and being oh, hot? Oh, man. <laughs> hot, long, 10-month deployment. I remember it, by the end of the deployment, after that deployment, none of us wanted to talk to each other for a while. It was like you'd see guys around the camera, hey, and then because it was just so long. And there's no internet. There's no internet. You know, you, communication with home is m- snail mail. Letters, that takes yeah. three-week conversations you yeah. have back and forth. And and the whole platoon is in a room that's twice the size of this. Yeah, the, whole, the racks are stacked yeah. four high. You, you've got like 80 movies on videotape. Yeah. And they're just running constantly. And you've seen every one of these 80 movies a 500 times because they're literally playing nonstop in the platoon space. We, it's ridiculous. We got on a kick, and this is the, another ARC deployment I went on later when I went up going to Somalia, but we got on a kick with, uh, uh, what's the movie where the girl's head spins around? The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Yeah. So we were watching The Exorcist over and over and over <laughs> again. And... Uh, Right about that was the time we did the uh, the shellback ceremony where oh, we went yeah, over the yeah, equator, and yeah. so there was only two guys in the platoon that had done it. So all the rest of us were wogs, and we were going through it. And uh, basically, all they do is throw food at you and yeah. spray you with water, which yeah. okay, this is like buds. We were just doing it, and guys would come by with like, oh, look at these wogs over here. And I remember one of the guys going, "The power of Christ." compels you <laughs> the power of christ compels you and then we all started shouting it and the guy just looked at us for a second and wandered off and someone else came behind with a hose and sprayed us a little bit but they had no idea what to make of us at all uh awesome uh you come home from that deployment and then what then what's up what's next uh then i went and worked in the armory for a little bit and waited to pick up another another platoon then after that i did I worked in the armory for another six months, did another platoon, and then when, that was a spec so ops you, platoon. You went, to, you went to the armory because you were interested. I was a gunner's mate, and guns, so I was a ordnance rep. What what position were you in your first platoon? Oh, good point. So I was a sniper, but they didn't. We didn't have NSW. You didn't have a sniper course. So there was a guy that had just come from. Were you point man? Point man and second squad. Check. And the first squad point man was a sniper, and he'd been to the Army Sniper School. Check. So they ran ran me through some different training and stuff like that to get me like kind of qualified, but I didn't have a certificate or right. nothing, and, and it was really um, minor stuff. So mm-hmm. me and the other sniper would you know practice just calling stuff out, and then when we do the tanker boardings, I'd be up in the helo, eyes above, passing info. And... Uh, so when I got back, I went to, um, I was working in ordnance, and then I got an opportunity to go to the second NSW sniper course they ran on the West Coast. And uh, that was that was brutal. Um, I've never failed anything. Up until then, I'd never failed anything in my life, and I didn't make it through the first sniper course. I passed the shooting portion, which most guys pass, but uh, and and that's like five weeks straight of shooting, but then when it came to stalking, I just didn't get it, and uh, I lacked the patience that I needed that I later 
figured it out. And so I didn't pass. I came out of there without not a sniper qual, but an advanced marksman qual. Oh, yeah. um, the the but, badge of dishonor. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, guys, so. Actually, in, it's funny because I say that jokingly but like everybody knows that how hard that's they used to fail everyone in stocking and it was crazy my my course there's only two guys that graduated with a qual with yeah. a sniper qual out of like how much of that of us? how much of that was the seal instructor bro team guys going we're gonna have the hardest course ever no one's gonna make it through it's gonna be the t- toughest course ever I, right? I don't yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I if I would have been in that position, I, I think there was that there was definitely a piece of that yeah. because there was like some guys getting pretty dang excited and screaming and yelling at you every yard line. You're like, good grief, what's going on? And uh, um, but I don't know if that would have made a difference for me passing or not. Like, had it been more leveled out and they yeah. hadn't gotten too excited about it, yeah. which I'm not saying they did, but that's just that's how it rolled out. So second. And I, I platooned up, and I was, a, a, again, a point man. And then I think I acted as a sniper, but then the sniper thing kind of fell off the radar for NSW a little bit. It wasn't a priority for anybody. And uh, did a second platoon, which is a spec ops platoon, went to the Philippines. Or no, we went to Guam. Mm-hmm. That's where we met. Yeah. At the jungle in Guam, and, uh, and the jungle was his bar. Yeah, the jungle was not the jungle. The jungle was the, the bar. That everybody went to. And then, uh, yeah, did that platoon. Then I wound up doing a year overseas. Well, I went home for a week and then came back with another platoon straight away and did did that. And those were great experiences. I mean, yeah. we traveled around a lot. Um, we did a lot of water work back in the day. A lot yeah. of tanker boarding, a lot of diving, all, all that. Um, didn't do anything real. No. And then when I came back from those deployments, I went to work in uh, our training cell at the team, um, and the guy I was working in the land warfare section, mm-hmm. working for a guy named uh, Danny Carroll, mm-hmm. who at the time was, uh, and I'm gonna have to back up a little bit on, on this, but uh, he he was just he was awesome to work for. He's he's one of these guys that no matter how bad anything ever was, he never complained. He might complain to someone that was his peer but he never complained down and then never complained about oh this is stupid or he was not the torture genius which when things were hard and he wasn't complaining then it, then it, it wasn't hard and he he's another guy with a really good sense of humor um and uh and just a good good time to be around but the biggest thing about him was just like never ever complained always something positive to say um, and and was was an expert. And then when he did give you a critique, he didn't. It wasn't condescending. So he was somebody I looked up to when he wasn't in my platoon. He was actually a leadership in my sister platoon. And I would go over and talk to him all the time. And like back in the day, I had my hair bleached white. It was always long. You know, I was never in the right uniform ever because not being in uniform made me feel special because I was insecure. And. Uh, all, all people would just scream at me, cut your hair, get in uniform, but they never would tell you, you know, hey, do it. And one day Danny goes, hey, Jason, why don't you, why don't you cut your hair? It's so easy to have a decent haircut and be in the right uniform and your life is going to be so much better. 
and you, you should just try it for a little bit. And he just laid it out, and it there was no condescension behind it. It was just straight-up advice from one friend to another. And uh, um, and so I tried it, and I was like, hey, this is amazing. <laughs> like People aren't asking, like, hey, what are you doing tonight? People are actually giving me stuff to do and then leaving me alone and letting me do it because they, they trusted me yeah. that I was going to be, prof- you know, be professional about it. And after – and working for him, I got the opportunity because when the teams ran sniper courses – I got to <clears> interject <throat> real quick because there's also those guys that would be like – they're condescending. Mm-hmm. And, and all you do is, you know, you know the guy that's all straight-laced running around the team looking like a dork. And you just think when you're a young team guy, you're like, this guy's a dork. He doesn't – he doesn't – and if they come up and say something, you're just mad at them. You know, you're just like, you're stupid. You don't get it. You don't know what it's like to be young, Jocko. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and that's how everybody else was yeah. was for me because yeah. you're like, really? Yeah. But, you know, Danny was a beast. And, yeah. and so it was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to what he's saying. You know, there's an important two things about Steve Hines and, and Danny, which I didn't work with either of those guys other than peripherally, peripherally through, through the years. You know, I think – Steve Hines put was at Free Fall School with mm-hmm. me, and he was at Nylon forever, so whatever. Yeah. And Danny Carroll, well, I, I remember Danny from being on deployment, and he, my LPO was good friends with him. And so, you know, we were always linked up. And But what I was going to say is, you, you mentioned this real quick, he was a good operator. Like, he was, oh, guys that, because if you were good at your job, yeah, that's like the base level of having respect and getting people to listen to you is, oh, this guy's really good at his job. And you'd even hear, before we, before the word operator had the, <laughs> had the kind of meaning that it has today where it's like, oh, he's an operator and it kind of is this taking on a life of its own. But back then it'd be like, oh yeah, that guy's a good operator. And it really meant something when I would hear that about someone. Yeah. Like, hey, that guy's a really good operator. And you'd think, oh wow, that guy's, that means he can shoot well, that means he can navigate well, that means he can dive well, that means he's he's uh, keeps his cool, it like meant all those things. That guy's a good operator. And so that sort of to me was the baseline. And especially for guys that I looked up to at my team when I was a new guy, it was the guys where you'd hear, oh, that guy's a really good operator. And then it was, okay. And it wasn't like that was everyone. It was oh, no. not a big number of people. Yeah. And and to develop a reputation as a good operator when there's no war going on, it's actually very hard to do that because what that means is every one of these stupid training missions, every one of these dumb dives that everyone's bitching about, you're actually taking completely serious and you're doing your best and you're teaching other people. And that is what, that's what developed the reputation back then was like, this guy's a good operator. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so then, then that guy's got the kind of wasta where he can hand out advice, and then the fact that he gives it out without being condescending or, or straight up, it's just so much, it's it's worth absorbing. What about, did you, so what other schools did you go to? Did you get any, what about, did you go to Sears School? Yeah. How was did, that, good times? Uh, you know, that that was, a, and I, was a, I forget when I, I think it was in this period after I did those two platoons that I finally got sucked into going to Sears School. Uh-huh. And, uh, I remember I didn't get waterboarded for some reason in Sears school, but I did kill and eat a rattlesnake. Mm. And they're like, hey, you're not supposed to do that. And then I got caught. 
And then I'm like, okay, well, but this is just in the field training portion where, you know, you're doing patrolling and uh, um, danger crossings. That's all you're doing all day. And then you have these little land nav exercises yeah. you're doing, which were super easy for me because this is yeah. what we did. So yeah. I would just just get them done and, and be done sleeping and hungry and trying to eat grasshoppers and everything because they don't feed you for the whole week. Yeah. Uh, and then when they catch you and they put you into that, that prison camp. Mm -hmm. So the first thing they do is have everybody line up and then they strip you down naked because apparently they're they're checking you for ticks. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So then they see all my tattoos and one of the instructors is like, hey, this guy's got the mark of the devil because the guys all have that Russian <laughs> accent, right? Yeah. So I get, I get grabbed and then I'm in the circle of these instructors and they're like, he's got the mark of the devil and they're kind of shoving me back and forth. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is kind of fun. This is, you know, this isn't a big deal. And then a guy that's straight across from me, I can remember seeing a big black hand come over his shoulder and it like covers up half of his chest, like like Andre the Giant big, and just move the dude away. And then another guy, a hand moves the other guy away. And then there's this just mountain of a man. Grabs me with his left hand, picks me up. They're only allowed to like hit you from out here to here. But it was like, you know, those those images in Rocky where it was like, <laughs> stars. And that just, Oh, that was that little smirk I just had on my face laying on the ground over there. And oh, here it comes again. Boom. That's and funny. Uh, humbling. I, I literally got the exact same treatment. <laughs> I remember I was in some vehicle and it was after you got, you avoided capture. And then eventually they just call up in the woods and they go, come down. You have to surrender now. Yeah. So we had avoided capture. Me and my pilot buddy, we had avoided capture. We go down and get in the vehicle. They drive us somewhere. And I'm just, you know, everything's a joke, whatever, and get out of the vehicle. And, you know, some guy's yelling at us with the fake Russian accent. And I'm just laughing at it inside, and which means, you know, I'm like kind of probably got that. I was 19. Yeah. And the dude, the dude comes over and he like yells at me. And I, I you know, who knows what I said to prove that I was a tough guy. And this dude cracked me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Damn. I was like, I can't believe he just did that. Uh -huh. And okay, well, good times. So that must be, they must they must know who we are coming in. They must look at the young punks and go, yep, I got this guy. Hey, I got, what number is Gardner yeah. coming over here from SEAL Team 5? What number is Willink coming over here from SEAL Team 1? I'm going to get me some of that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's got to give them just an immense amount of satisfaction when that look gets knocked off your face because they can just see the light come out of yeah. your eyes and you're like, oh, yeah. it's okay. A, it's a I mean, I've been punched many times yeah that open hand smack full on and i don't know what you're talking about only bringing it back to wherever this brother <laughs> brought it back all the way and yeah. brought it all the way home too it was a good one and i've been like i said i've been hit before i've been knocked out before it didn't knock me out but it was a it was definitely a it was definitely a reality of oh of, yeah oh yeah th th these guys are these guys are not playing around these mm -hmm. guys are going to take pleasure in beating the crap out of me and, and they're going to do it if they if i give them any reason to so in which that so that was two deployments. You come back. You're in training. How much did you learn when you were working in training? Because I know I, as an E5 working in SEAL Team One training cell, learned like just mountains of information. Tons. 
Yeah, exactly. Because that's when when you have to teach something is when you got to really absorb it because you have to completely understand it and everything else. So that's when, and it opened up the curtain for me. So I saw everything that went into training that was behind the scenes. You know, when you go through the training, you're like, oh, okay. Well, there's a lot that goes on from laying on the ranges to doing the med drills to ordering the ammo to trying to make the, the training relevant and realistic for the guys so it's, you just don't feel like you're wasting their time. But, uh, yeah, and then it was at that, at that time that uh, I went back and restocked and got my sniper qual and then was an instructor for a couple of different sniper courses. Um, that period and of time. the difference is what you was there something you said you didn't get it the stalking the first time around was it like you didn't quite figure out dead space was it you just didn't have the patience for it were you like whatever or what 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 did you what changed about you what did you learn in between I, those two I uh, so they drop you off and then they'll just point hey the observation point is that way and during a stalk you're uh, you're trying to find where these other guys are at and and you don't know and they're other they're sniper instructors so they have really really good skills and optics and they're sitting out somewhere they should not totally concealed but you've got to you've got to find them before you move and the mistake i was making before is i'm getting impatient and i'm just like i'll just start going that way and along the way i'll figure out where they're at and as opposed to okay, I'm going to just sit right here and take my time and figure out where everything is and how everything's laid out and then try and find the OP before I move down toward it at all. Uh, you'd have to, I'd have to move laterally one way or the other to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so typically on the stocks, when it clicked for me, I would be the last guy to, le- to, to actually leave where they drop us off and I'd be the first guy done. Mm. And typically I'd spend almost no time crawling because I would do, do the, 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 you know, find the OP. Once I had it located, then I would study the terrain really hard and figure out where I needed to go to get within that 200 yards to do your, you know, final shot. Did you figure this out on your own? Well, they tell you that, but I just started <laughs> listening to them and, and, and it clicked. They're like, hey, you gotta find the OP. Okay. Cause yeah, isn't it strange? And I mean, well, your kids, well, you, you got kids that are old enough. Like it's the same thing with your kids. You, you tell them like, hey, figure out where the OP is before you start crawling or whatever it is less life lesson that you learned by uh-huh. getting hit in the head with a baseball bat and you try and give your kids a hint or just tell them and they're just like, no, I'm just gonna start moving. Yeah, I got this. Yeah, and I have no idea how to deal with that. It, it, it's it's funny because I think you and I have had a lot of the same experiences with with dealing with our kids. You're like, hey, I'm telling you, I've lived through this. Here's what you should do. And but now I've come to the point where I'm still going to tell them, but I know what they're probably going to do, and then yeah, and then just wait and see. Keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, I guess. Is what people say. Okay, so what I noticed, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking about this right now. When I was in training cell, and I was because so, I was single and didn't care about anything else, 
And so I taught everything. It was like, oh, there's land warfare trip. Go, go, go teach land warfare. Oh, there's a CQC trip. Go, go teach that. Go teach combat swimmer. Te- just teach everything because, because, uh-huh. and now I look back, how awesome it must be when you got like guys like that at the team who are just like, oh yeah, I don't mind going on another month long trip back to back. Doesn't matter. We'll go train. And it wasn't just me that was doing. It's like all my all my bros that you know I was friends with. All my guys from Team One were all saying that. Like, hey, we'll go teach whatever. You said it was on the road. We don't care. It's awesome. I had a Volkswagen van that I'd taken all the seats out of the back and just lined with carpet, and I had some some bean bags in there. And when I was on the strand, I slept in the parking yeah. lot yeah. for like I think eight months because <laughs> I was like I would rather be on a trip collect, collecting per diem and doing stuff yeah. than sitting here. And so that's that's where that's where I was. It was always out on training blocks. I was running an SQT. I wasn't running it, but I was one of the instructors on an STT when we used to run STT at the team. So it was a bunch of new guys. We were putting them through training. And I remember right now, I'm remembering this. There was like multiple officers in the same STT class. So mm-hmm. each squad had multiple officers. So we were rotating through like, okay, it's your turn to be squad leader. It's your turn during IADS. And now that I think about it, I remember so much of looking at like, oh, you'd see one guy do it and he'd be all screwed up. And you'd say, what is wrong with this guy? Oh, he's shooting the whole time instead of looking around. And then just from one iteration. And the big difference is when you're not doing the IAD, when you're actually watching it unfold, everything becomes so clear. Well, this is like when I talk about detaching, you're, this is my earliest or some of my earlier experiences of being detached is you're watching these immediate action drills unfold. And I remember one officer that was all jacked up and I watched him like, why is why can't this squad do a whatever? Why can't this squad do a, uh, a strong left or whatever or, or a peel right? Why can't they do it? What is wrong? So I'm watching this one officer and the other officer like, oh, this officer did it fine. I watched him. The contact happens and the people start shooting and then the guy looks around and makes a call. I watched this other officer. The contact happens, he starts shooting and he doesn't stop shooting and no one's making the call. And, and it was just as simple as like, hey man, your job is not to shoot. Your job is to make, you know, look around and make a call. That You learn so much when you're instructing, not only because you have to think about what you say and you have to be able to articulate why and that makes you dig deep into the reason why and then you get to detach and actually watch it unfold and watch these little minor mistakes happen and then you get to correct them and then you get to recognize them in yourself when you make them. It's a powerful thing too. And I, when I was at TradeIt, I think we did a good job of transfer, because no one, you know, used to be, I don't wanna go to training, I don't wanna go to training, I don't wanna go to TradeIt. I think we did a good job of transferring the mentality to, hey, if you wanna get good at this job, you gotta come here. You got to. Yeah. Which I believe is the truth. So anyone, if you want to get good at something, just try and teach it. Same thing with jujitsu as well. The uh um that was an SOP for us when, when I was in land warfare at five was when a guy was having a hard time, we'd pull him up. It's like, hey, come stand next to me, the RSO, yeah. and just watch your guys. Eighty percent of the time that would that would Problem fix solver. the problem. Yeah, yeah. Which is a testament to just detachment. Yeah, it is. It is a testament to detachment. And man, once you learn how to detach, even though you're in the situation, it's like just makes life so much easier. So much easier. 
Okay, so now what? You you do another platoon. So, just, I got three platoons under my belt. I'm working in in uh, in uh, um, land warfare or at at trade you know mm-hmm. training cell at the team. And then one of the the platoons that was on the ARG, they were going to pull into Somalia and help the Mar- the UN pull out of Somalia. This is '95, and one of their their sniper in their platoon got thrown in jail in Hong Kong and it was a big international incident so they were down a sniper so I happened to be on quarterdeck watch when the OIC of the platoon called back to the team and said we need another sniper out here we're down one and we know we're gonna go into Somalia here in like three months and uh, I'm like hey I'm a sniper and I'm a sniper instructor send me so I passed it back to the um, XO, and there were actually a couple, there was another guy that was senior to me, he was an E6 at the time, that was gonna go, and then something came up at the last second, he couldn't go, so they're like, hey, you're going. So I packed up my stuff, um, they flew me over to Bahrain, I'm the, when the ship pulled in, I met up with the platoon, and then got in the platoon, and uh, about six weeks later, we wound up in Somalia. Dang. So. I got, I just got lucky, you know, because you can't you can't yeah. chase it. And then in the '90s, there was no like at that point. I think there had been two other platoons that had cycled through Somalia, and the, and and both of them had had, had gotten in troops in contact, mm-hmm. which was a dream for all of us. Yeah. Uh, and and timing wise, this is like two years after the big Black Hawk Down thing happened yeah. there, so. <clears throat> got in that platoon, um, another ARC platoon, back on the same ship that I did my first ARC in. We were in the same burning space. Uh, what ship was it? The the Ogden, oh, L- the LPD-5. Ogden. Yep, get some. Uh, and uh, another guy that was really another guy that was a big mentor of mine I looked up to a lot, was, uh, and he was the LPO, was Monty Treesize. And Monty had been around NSW for a long time and he had the additional deal where he'd he had broken service so he was a a police officer up in Los Angeles and uh, he had a lot of you know because those guys he'd actually been in gunfights before and in high stress situations so it was it was really good having him having him there and then when we did go ashore myself and the other snipe we split up into two different sniper elements and uh, Monty was with my element, and then the uh, uh, the other sniper was with the the chief was with him, and then they each of us had like five guys in our, our group, which was an excuse to get ashore. And the reason, and this was completely the Marines' deal, they were there to pull the UN out, but they didn't have the 50 caliber sniper rifle capability, and that's something that they wanted to have so that they could reach out these long distance and be a little bit more surgical mm-hmm. with uh, their application of force. Um, Smart. So we were, our officers were able to sell it, and, uh, and then we got to go ashore doing that. And that was... Uh, how, many, how many days did you spend on the ground? Man, we were only in there for like three days. Dang. And so the Marines, I think we were on the, the, the second lift ashore, and I was down on the airfield, but the airfield in Mo- the Mogadishu airport's right up against the ocean. Mm-hmm. And 
And it's the it, reason I say mm-hmm is because before this, or maybe it was after this, but I was cutting gator squares, which means driving around in circles off the coast of Somalia for for a long time. And we were supposed to go in, and we were we we had we got our issue of of ammo, real ammo. Mm-hmm. You know, all of our gear, our ammo, our mags were loaded. Um, our I remember I put the real um, forty mic mic into my vest for the first time, and they didn't quite fit right. Like it was a cause yeah, no one gold had ever, ones are longer. Yeah, no one had ever you know done it or no, no like I didn't know, and yeah. and so here we were. And we and so we did all kinds of maps. We we were ready to go in, and then we we never went in, which was and part of the reason we didn't go in is the same reason we didn't go into Rwanda because Black Hawk Down had happened, and mm-hmm. people were just like, mm, they were everyone was super hyper cautious about everything, and so yeah, I remember we were going, we were actually taking boats into the airfield. That's what we were going to do. So I remember that airfield being and close. Then so, oh, this is a funny. Did you story. guys fly in helicopters in? No, we rode in an, an, a, on one of the big hovercraft, the Elkac. But we went in. So, okay, this is not dangerous now, but, you know, the Mogadish Airport's controlled by the UN, and then there's that green beach right there, which is infested with bull sharks. I think there were like 12 total shark attacks and a couple fatalities on that beach. So we got tasked with doing the hydrographic reconnaissance well, isn't there some story about some kind of slaughterhouse or something that like i never saw it but that was the story the big, there was a the camel slaughterhouse there's a camel slaughterhouse and it's just teeming with blood and the sharks can't resist that's exactly what we were going in with we had that story the yeah. big story like the midget sniper in iraq you and know? they're all <laughs> they're all just waiting for you to hit the water yeah um you know, which is kind of what I think anytime I'm doing anything at night. I'm like, <laughs> in, in the ocean, you're like, like the sharks are just waiting right there yeah. for you to come in and just come up and bite oh, you. I'm so stupid. I never think about that. I never one time in my whole career thought, okay, I'm getting in the water. It's night in Southern California. There's big sharks that live here and there could be one. I never thought about that for whatever reason. I don't know. I. I'm too stupid. I do. But yeah. then I'm like, oh, I'm cold now. And I think about something else or... All right, um, so you're so, so you guys take Elcax in. So wait, so we go to do a hydro recon, oh, and and because some. of the sharks, we got to do this big perpendicular hydro recon, perpendicular parallel, whatever. Um, and we're doing it with zodiacs, and and we're spaced every fifty yards, and then the ribs on the outside of it, and the water is. I mean, so you're not swimming. You're we're just, not swimming. You're taking your soundings because of from, right. from boats. Yeah. And um, there was a big net that we had to get out of there so that the LCACs and the landcraft come in. So I'm in the first rib, and then and, and a rib is a like in, it's kind of inflatable hole, yeah. thirty feet. And then the next one out is uh, like fifty yards past mine. So the water's super clear, like you can see the bottom, and it's like sixty feet deep. And uh, the boat out past me, they're all yelling. They're like, hey, look down. There's some sharks down there. So one of the, the team guy that was in that boat jumps up on the, the sponson of the rib to look at the sharks and slips in the water. <laughs> and it was like he hit a trampoline. <laughs> I don't know how he did it because that the ribs are so high out of the water. You're like, how did he even get it? But he got in and he was out so fast, I'm not even sure he got wet. <laughs> Oh, and I don't blame him. But no, we went in uh, 
there was just a the planning cycle was crazy for that four yeah. days everybody was down to the spot they were going to be in we we didn't our study there was a bunker that we wanted to use um that would be a good position from where we were at so we run like the third lift on the LCAX and the LCAX those big hovercraft, mm. but you can't sit down on the deck. So they had this big 40 foot mill van strapped to the deck. You went inside of it and then there was a bunch of troop seating. And then we just rode in on that. Hope the thing didn't sink because you would just be done. <laughs> Got out Riding and then patrolled over to our spot where we, we wanted to set up in this, this bunker and uh, it didn't work. The slits out of the bunker, the, the scope of my 50 cal would stick out, and the scope was looking right at the cement. Mm. So then we built, we got up on top of the bunker, and we started filling sandbags, moving sandbags around, made ourselves a little, like, firing position on top of that bunker, and uh, um, and that's where we set what up. What were you covering down on? You were covering down looking for attackers on, as they came in to, to try and attack the airfield? So the airfield was controlled. So we had set a perimeter up inside of the UN perimeter that was already there. And so the first day there, nothing really happened because it was all status quo. The UN controlled the airfield. There were watchtowers and stuff like that. And then we had a line set up that was just a narrow strip of beach um, between us and the ocean. So... When the UN left, then we would just all fall back into the amphibs and go back out to the to yeah. the ships. So the first day, you know, there's always tracer fire going on. Mogadishu's pretty active. Um, not much happened. Then the next morning, at like 4 a.m., all the manned positions were replaced by tanks. And then everybody left. And they just, there was a big camp like 500 yards to the south of us, and they just they just they just left everything there and then then at like eight in the morning the tanks all left and just left it open so there was this weird period of time where everyone was like what just happened and then a lot of the civilian populace started piling in because there was like there's water there's building materials they were ripping the roofing off a lot of the buildings that, that these guys had just abandoned um and then about an hour after that, the you know you had your different uh, um, warlords and factions figured out what was going on, and then they had to stop people from getting stuff because they wanted it. So we watched like a big crowd of people, and it was just like in that movie. There's a big crowd of people ripping stuff, running everywhere, ripping stuff out of these buildings, and then guys show up with a jeep with like a PKM, which is a belt-fed machine gun in the back, and just aim at the people and start shooting them. And then you just see it like oil on water or whatever. Everyone moved and they're just all taking off. So one clan kind of took control of a camp that was at 500 yards to the south end of the runways. They're five, 600 yards away from us was the edge of that camp. That was UN controlled. The other clan, which these two major factions of warlords down there controlled the other end of the runway. At one point, they moved down the runway and tried to attack this other clan that was holding, because you can't control half of a runway. Mm. And they, they had like this crazy, they had crazy technicals and our, our rules of engagement was, hey, 
they can have technicals out and that's a civilian vehicle it's like a road warrior vehicle <laughs> with some kind of crew crew serve weapon in the back and they had one was like a big five-ton truck with a quad anti-aircraft gun sitting in the back with a guy like you know dialing the thing to move it around yeah. and stuff and they went halfway down the runway they tried to shoot it out but the this other camp the other faction shot back and shot them off of there so that went on but that was really those two fat there was some spillover toward us but it was those two factions shooting at each other well at some point people stood they started the one faction that controlled the south this camp to the south end of the runway started to shoot at us and so we started taking a lot of indiscriminate small arms fire and then we had a a, a recoilless rifle launched at us but it went over and landed in the ocean and some random RPGs. It was all pretty far away. So, you know, as you know, in an urban environment, it's it's really difficult to tell where you're getting shot at. And then especially when they're 600 yards away, there's it's daylight, you can't see any muzzle flash. So unless somebody gets really sloppy or you're really lucky, you're not gonna see it. And the way Mogadishu is like a big hillside with all these buildings, and rolls up, it's just not like you're looking at one set of buildings. Mm -hmm. You're looking at like a row of buildings, then behind it another row of buildings. Just infinite, yeah, infinite just a giant, giant mouse maze. So, um, saw a guy on a roof with an RPG, and then a second later, one gets launched at us, and then we're like, oh, okay, but he missed. And then, uh, so we basically at that point they're like you're you're cleared hot. This is silly. We've met our rules of engagement because and then back in the '90s the appetite for applying lethal force was was pretty subdued. It's not as liberal as it is today and how it should be. And so it took us a little while to get there. And they're like, okay, these guys are bad. These guys are obviously trying to get us. So. You're cleared hot, find somebody to shoot. They couldn't find anyone to shoot for a while. Then this camp that was 500 yards south of us, we saw it was a group of like seven guys. Two of them had RPGs, your rocket propel grenades. Another guy's patrolling with like two, PK, two PKM gunners. Mm. They're belt-fed machine guns and like an AK gunner. And they're patrolling, and we can see them, we can see them. And now they come out the front of the camp, and at the, the gate of that camp, which is facing us 500 yards away, there's two sandbagged positions for the watches who would be up there to check people coming in and out. Mm-hmm. And they, the guy, there was one guy, he had a gray, uh, uh, ironically, he had a gray T-shirt on that said Army. <laughs> right and he's got an RPG and he's definitely in charge and he, he put a PKM on one of the sandbags pointing at us he's talking to guys giving direction turns around puts the the RPG on his shoulder and is looking at us through the site and so our our OIC is like okay well hey let's hold on and see what we're doing then Monty who's Monty's really savvy he's like hey they're getting ready to shoot at us. He's adjusting the sights right now. He's getting, and, and we wanted to preempt this so I could shoot at the guy before he got a chance to launch the RPG because yes, they're a close. Good, that's a good plan. So, um, the OIC is like, okay, go shoot him. So I've got kind of a, I've got a really jacked up firing position. It's a 500 yard shot. 
I, uh, I squeeze, squeeze around off, boom, and then apparently I missed. So, which, which I, my, my shooting position was not good, and I was really, really, like, excited. I had what they call, you know, buck fever. It's the first time I've ever shot at a human, so I was worked up pretty good. Um, and then the guy who was spotting for me, who wasn't a spotter because the, the sniper was in the other mm-hmm. platoon or at the other, uh, the other firing position, he was sitting right next to me on the sandbags looking through the spotting scope, and when the 50 cal went off, it's got a big muzzle break so the recoil doesn't break a collarbone. It ports back. It just blew a bunch of sand in his eyes and knocked the spotting scope right out of his hands. So Monty's like, hey, you missed. I'm like, do you have a correction? And, and he's like, no. And it sounded like he was talking in slow motion because he was just just super calm and cool. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm like, oh, no. And now I'm questioning whether I might... My, my dope, my dad on previous engagements oh, for five, yeah. fi- 500 yards is any good or anything. That 50 cal, you to take the entire bolt out of the gun, knock the brass out from the round you just fired, put a new round in, chamber it, and reload. So I chambered it, reload, downrange. They were, they were like, ooh, they just shot at us, you know? Mm-hmm. So the guy was like, wow. So they're starting to talk, and now he's got that RPG on his shoulder. And now I hold a little harder, I take a breath, let half out, start to squeeze that trigger, I get that surprise bake, boom, pull the bolt out, knocking the brass out, load another round, and I'm going, did I hit? And our comms guy had grabbed binos, and he goes, oh, man. (laughs) And I'm like, did I hit? And he goes, God darn it, good grief. And I'm thinking that he's going to tell me that I missed by like half a mile and he doesn't even know what kind of correction to give me. And I hit him in the arm. I'm like, dude, what happened? Did I hit any? And he didn't even hear me. He goes, he is down. Oh, that had to hurt. So now that PKM gunner who, who was set up on the sandbags, he just lets her rip. And so there's the, the, the bullwick crap, so those rounds going over the top of us. And Monty's like, hey, I think this guy's like right at 500 yards. You got, you, you, you're dialed in, you know, he's just talking in my ear. Like, man, like we're going to get the mail or something or, or whatever, just calm. And then, uh, so I can't see the guy at all. All I can see is the muzzle flash. So I put the crosshairs in the middle of the muzzle flash, squeeze the round off, Reload, come back up and look to see what what had happened. And there was a, the gun had spilled over the front side of the sandbags. There was a huge divot in the sandbags. I couldn't see, you know, I couldn't tell. I, I think I hit the rifle, but then he had spilled out. He was out from the side of the sandbags on his side and and his just his guts were everywhere. He was flailing around for a little bit and then he expired, I assume, because I quit looking at him at that point because a Jeep had now shown up and it had like one of their 50, 51 cows in the back yeah, and the guy is just let go boom, 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 boom. And I'm thinking, oh man, we've grabbed the tiger by the tail because I've got this round, I can, you know, one round at a time. And I'm waiting for like, there was a tow missile gunner right near our position for him to light it up. But, uh, we'd gotten really, really strict rules of engagement 
briefings before we went in. So the guys were a little bit hesitant to let her rip. So that shot, I rushed. I wound up hitting the Jeep right on the sidewalls between the gunner's legs. But that was enough. As soon as the Jeep got hit, boom, they drove away and they were done. And then these guys started to do a peel. And it was a really organized, squared away, good peel. So they were peeling behind a building. So now they were starting to gain a little bit of distance on us. And they were falling behind this big building. Monty's giving me, gives me another round. He's like, hey, I think they're about at 700 yards now. Adjust your dope. So I dot, made my adjustment from, from where I was just shooting at to, to 700. <clears throat> and as, you know, as the, they're doing a peel, a guy gets up and runs. So there was a guy running full value. He's running across with, with the rock RPG. So I shot at him, hit way behind him, and he went behind the building, then reloaded. Two more guys peeled behind the building, and then they were just gone. So I held, I held my crosshairs on the edge of that building where they had just gone. And a second later, the guy with the RPG steps back out into my crosshairs. And so my crosshairs are squared up on his pelvis and I start loading the trigger as he's taken a knee to shoot the RPG. So his knee hit the ground when that 50 cal round hit him in the chest. And so we were shooting uh, the Ralphus Mark 211, which is a multi-purpose armor piercing round and it explodes when it hits something hard. And the spotter's like, bro, that thing lit right up when it hit his chest. Boom, down he went. And then, uh, then that was it. Then they got some guys over there that uh, linguists. And they had loudspeakers on their Humvees, and they're like, "Hey, don't shoot at us. We're not taking sides in this whole thing." And that kind of calmed everything down for the next couple hours um, and into that day. And then we we watched the guy. It's, just, it's like life was incredibly cheap there. Saw a guy get pushed off a roof. We were watching uh, um, in the evening. We had gotten, someone said like, hey, th- this one building about two kilometers away, that's one of the clan leaders buildings. And we could see guys up there in the evening and, and they get that cot there mm-hmm. that makes them all go kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. And we'd see guys sitting there like watching the sunset up on a roof. And then one of them would start to get animated and waving their arms around. Like they were arguing about something. Then they were all animated. Then they were up like beating each other with clubs, hitting each other with rocks, and then it would just stop. And then it would start up again. And I think at least one of those, we watched the guy just get pushed off a roof, fall dead. That's just how they roll. (laughs) And so so the first day was pretty mellow. Was this all this activity took place on the second or the third day? First day was mellow, second day was uh oh it was when they pulled back and then the third day is when they the, no the first day was mellow second morning is when they pulled back and then the second day is when we got in that first firefight and then it was either that afternoon or the next day my memory you know it's been 13 years mm-hmm. emory slips where they called and they had they had an issue with the guy they're like hey 23 years but yeah we'll take it okay (laughs) (laughs) i should have taken more discipline um they uh they hit us up they're like hey we've got a guy down here that is close to where we're getting ready to move some armor and he has an at4 which is weird 
because that's one of our weapons. It yeah. wasn't an RPG. He had a legit AT4, and they they shot at him, and he ran away and came back. They're like, he's going to use it. So we want to do this deal. Where we're going to have a, a sniper initiated kind of assault on this guy. So um, <clears throat> they sent an LEV over to our position. Me and the OIC got in it. We went and saw the the lieutenant colonel, and he's like, hey. Um, here we we studied a map. He's like, hey, here's where the guy is. I think a good spot is this tower. There's some recon guys up there. We're gonna put you up there with them, and then then get this going. So I went up to the tower. We moved up to the tower. The guy showed us. So what it was was out there. There was a set of bunkers in alongside of the airfield that was now controlled by just whoever. Mm-hmm. And this guy was in one of the bunkers, and then he would come out with like six or seven other guys, and he had an eight, you know, and they would smoke cigarettes, and he had the AT4, and he would, they were watching the US line. So they said, hey, here's what we want you to do. Um, you know, he keeps coming in and out. When he comes out again, we want you to shoot him. And then we're gonna have, they, they shifted some of the light armored vehicles down the line. To where they could go at go at the bunker with their coax guns and try and get him and his buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put us up in the tower. There's this like 20 mile an hour wind just howling. Full value. It's uh, right to left, and then it's from where I was in the tower. It's a thousand yard shot. So. So I got a bunch of sandbags, bunkered my position up. We waited around, you know, for the guy to come up. He comes up. So I take this 1,000-yard shot at a guy in a 20-mile-an-hour, you know, full-value crosswind, which at the time, there's probably two, three people in the world that can make a shot like that, and I'm not one of them. <laughs> I missed and hit his buddy. <laughs> so I didn't hit the guy with the... AT4, I hit the guy with the AK-47 standing three feet to his right because I put in too much wind, and they all dove in the bunkers. Then everybody on the line started shooting the bunkers, tore the bunkers up. They called a ceasefire, and then the, the one of those guys survived, and it was the guy that had that AT4, but he left it, and he just got up and ran away. Um then at a later point, there was a guys. They were shooting at the Elkaxes. They were coming in and out, mm-hmm. and so we, we sh- there was a there was a big cinder block wall seven hundred yards away, away from the uh, um, the airfield there. And he was on the other side of it. And there was one cinder block missing. And he would look through and shoot through it. So I shot at him and hit the wall right next to the wherever he was shooting at, and I scared him away and didn't come back. But. Uh, then that was it. Then uh, the next day we uh, packed up and everybody fell back out to the ship. The The Marines ran a great operation because everything kind of went like clockwork, exactly the way it was supposed to. And it was uh, good to go. Then you went back on LCAX, you just said? Yeah, the LCAX came up on the beach. Got back in the mill van? Got back in the mill van, went back out to the ship, and then the final deal was... There was just a strip of the amphibs that just drove out to sea as they broke down the the final deal. And that was it. Yeah, and that was it. That was, but but then I was like one of six guys at the time on the West Coast that had you know been on the trigger and 
and been in combat. Yeah, no, I, I remember. It was awesome. I was uh, super stoked and super jealous, of course, like every other guy was like, you which actually this is why I did another ARG. Because it seemed like, hey, if you're going to get some action, you need to go with, with the Marine Corps in the ARG and go out and do that. That's why myself and all the other guys that, you know, all my old running mates, we all were like, okay, we'll just do another ARG. Get back over there. Let's it's, let's make this happen. It's going to the problem. I mean, I had two ARGs and two combat action ribbons. Yeah. And then, you know, it worked out for a lot of other guys since then or before that because there were two, the other guys that had rotated through Somalia had been on the ARG platoon. Yeah. When you get home, you know, what was going on? Were you married at this point? I was. I was married to my son's mother. And uh, and when did you get married? I don't remember. Was it, was it no, but not, not what year, but like, were you oh, in training cell at the time? I was in training cell so at the time. It, I was a, after so you were pretty I, much a, uh, less than a year of marriage or maybe two years of marriage at this uh -huh. point? Yeah. And then uh, how did, how was that dealing with? You know, being gone and being the team guy marriage oh, thing, which it, is generally it, really hard. It, it was hard. It, and, and it, I want to back up really quick because I want to make sure I point this out before we get into this next thing. And another thing that, that Monty taught me that we kind of talked about a little bit was he's like, wherever you go, run for mayor. And he's just talking about be good to everyone everywhere you go because they're going to go out of their way to take care of you. So, like the, that crew on the Ogden on that deployment, they took great care of us because he always went out of his way to be good to everybody. You know, just to go back to Monty a little bit, it's weird to think about now, right? You look uh -huh. back at what you did now, what you've done since then, which is obviously a ton, and going back to you being there. And when I think about it in my mind, about how just uh, I guess uh, immature is part of the word, but it's beyond just being immature because I'm not just talking about being immature in the traditional sense of the word. I'm talking about being combat immature, meaning no one had any combat, right? Yeah. And I think about just having a guy like Monty who's like level-headed, who's been in some shit before and can go, you know what? Hey, we need to shoot this guy before he shoots at us. That's just a totally sensible thing to say. Mm -hmm. But if, if everyone's... because. You got these massive ROE briefs, and everyone's being paranoid, and you can't. Hey, listen, we don't want we don't want this to escalate, and all these things are in everyone's head. Yep. And it's so easy. It's kind of like the detachment when you just go, "Hey, you know what? This guy has an RPG. They just shot one at us. He's aiming it, and he's going to shoot us again. We need to kill this guy." Okay, go ahead. And then instead of you know, dude, you're low, you're low, you know, or whatever, just hey. You're good, load another round. Just being calm. When I think about the advantage and how that's a pretty good performance. You, mm -hmm. you know, what you guys was a pretty good performance with no experience. Because I think of how, you know, what, what I gained through experience and the maturity, the combat maturity of seeing things and things unfolding and being like, okay, I, I can handle this right now or this isn't a big deal or whatever. But man, when you're when you don't have that, Everyone's all excited and everyone's freaking out and everything's just magnified. And so it's pretty impressive. And it, to me, you know, again, you have a guy like Monty that's just looking at the OIC, his boss, mm -hmm. and saying, hey, we actually need to kill this guy right now. And, and not being like, we need to take this guy out, which just escalates. Then the OIC is thinking, oh my God, you know, he might say, shut up, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just going, hey man, we need to take this guy out. Just, just having that mentality 
is is so important. And I don't know, how well would you guys have done if he wasn't there? I don't think we'd have done as well. We we might not even been in the position where we shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, cuz he just carried us through that whole thing. He 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 had a funny thing he taught us. He goes, "If you're ever really excited and and he may have put this out to you too over the radio. He goes, "If you try to talk like you have a southern drawl, <laughs> <laughs> it'll slow you down. Yeah. And he goes, and you won't have a s- southern draw, by the way, but it'll slow you down. And he told us of a case that there was a, uh, some officers in a high-speed chase, and they were so calm over the radio, people didn't believe that they were in a high-speed chase except for the rep- the speed at which they are going, oh, we just passed this street, we just passed this street, we just passed this street, because they were cool as cucumbers, you know, and they're not freaking out. Yeah, that's awesome. No, it's it's definitely just it's cool to hear that story. And you you to, probably told me that story twenty one years ago or something like that. Yeah. And I actually heard you brief that story to a bunch of people at a dog and pony show, and uh, it was really epic to hear you tell that story. But to, to hear the full, actually, I don't think you ever gave me that detailed of a debrief. But it's awesome that at that time, no combat experience. It's like okay, here's what we're gonna do, mm-hmm. and that's a good lesson for everyone. Man, detached, stay calm, look at what's going on. And it all does go back to the fact that you were in that position probably had something to do with the fact that you that you know you were running for mayor or or you know, Monty as a platoon chief was running for mayor and building relationships and hanging out with yeah. the Marines and teaching them whatever and getting giving them some gear and what you know, just doing those things that you're building relationships with the rest of the team instead of being an arrogant jerk to everyone because you think you're better than them. Absolutely, because there was another unit that had 50 cal sniper rifles that didn't get to come. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. Okay, so now you get back, and how long was that deployment? Was that just a six-monther? Well, they they were already deployed, so I, I did like oh, three okay. and a half months with them because I replaced it, got the it. guy that got in trouble. Got it. And then, but okay, so now we were starting to dive into a marital scenario that yeah. was going on. So you got a kid already? You got a kid? Uh... Uh, my son's mother was pregnant okay. when I went on that deployment. Check. And so he was, that was in February and he was born in September of 95. Check. So yeah, I, I came back and then it, it was one of those situations where um, me being gone all the time didn't help, but me being home all the time didn't help either. <laughs> and it, and And so... We just parted ways, yeah. and it it was uh, it was hard for me not to have my son in my house. But it it was it was the best thing because me and his mom just didn't get along. Yeah. Um, and then this is at the point at the same time. This is is this when you got out? This is right. With this, our, we got divorced right after I got out. Which did you I, get out with the vision in mind that you were going to be able to save this thing, or did you get out with the vision in mind like, no, this is already too far south? No, yeah, I got out. She she wanted she's like, hey, I want you around more. You're gone too much. This you know this isn't good. Mm-hmm. Get that. But then, so you we, got out. I got out, and then um, then she realized that she really doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I, I can't blame her. So so then then we ended up separating. Or, or get you know going through what the what was your plan getting out? Oh, I was gonna go work for a guy doing some kind of uh, um, 
investment stuff. Because uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> we... <laughs> There, there was no plan. It wasn't thought through. The smartest thing I did was the day, the day I got out, I enlisted in the or or I joined the reserve. So yeah. I was in the SEAL Team Five Reserve teams. Yeah. So I did that for a year and a half, and then when all the dust settled, and uh, with with the uh, the you know who's going to have custody and where my son's going to live, it was like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm only happy when I go to do my reserve drill. And so I'm like, hey, I wanna go back on active duty. At the time, they were critically undermanned for E6s. So they're like, boom. So the timing, like my timing, I've been so lucky for my timing. Like being on the quarterback that one day, (laughs) I checked into trade at in August of 2001 (sighs) into the sniper cell. And then, you know, the planes hit the towers and then the teams are just off to the races. Yeah. Did you when you when you were civilian, um, or whatever you were a reservist civilian? How long did it take you to realize that this was a bad call? And I'm gonna jump forward. Like when you would have guys that were saying they were gonna get out at 13 years or nine years or whatever. Did you you know what what did you tell them about that? Oh, you mean later? Yeah, when like when later. I, like because you know I would you know when I was well my you know once I was an officer and I would have friends that were like, hey, I'm going to get out. And, you know, I'd say the experience I had was I went to college. Right. And when I went to college for three years and when I came back, I was like, yeah, the main thing I learned in college was never, ever, ever, ever get out of the teams ever. Because it, dealing with other people, it was just so horrible. Mm-hmm. And especially, I mean, like you and me who literally spent our whole adult lives in a platoon, you get out of in the in no, with normal people and you're like what are the everyone doing what's that what, why is this even happening it just nothing makes sense yeah there's a lot of awkward silences no one gets your jokes and it was uh what i would usually tell guys is like hey i got broken service and you're gonna once you get out you're gonna miss this peer group mm-hmm. you'll miss this job and i don't think you're gonna make that much more money yeah and but I never, I always tried the soft sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, and, and I, w- I, I would tell guys, here's my phone number. Do not lose my phone number. And if you decide you want to come back in, please call me. I will, you know, figure out how to get you wherever I'm at or back in. And, and, and I've done that for at least two or three guys. Yeah. No, it's a, I know it's a hard decision for guys to make. And, and it usually, and, and sometimes it's, um, what is that? It's an emotional decision. Oh, completely. Because you know, they had a bad deployment. They didn't like someone or their wife's mad at it, whatever. And they make that emotional decision when, in fact, the teams can take care of you too. You know, the teams can go, mm-hmm. hey, look, we know you need some downtime. You're going to go to Bud's and be an instructor or whatever, you know, for three years. You know, you can get your kid through high school or whatever. So the teams yeah. does a good job usually of taking care of of the people, you know, taking care of team guys. But sometimes, you know, people, they have the grass is greener situation. Well, and and again, heads. in the 90s, we're playing, we're, we're training for a big game yeah. that we're not going to do. And yeah. so there was a loss of job satisfaction there. Yeah. And, and who knows where NSW, what trajectory we were on had these wars not started. Yeah. That's a good question. That's a scary question. 
Um, what, so what'd you do when you got back in? So you went, so you I, said, I got, I went, went into trade at, just got stood up and I went into the stand up. That was 2001. That's lucky, huh? Uh-huh. And so I got, and, and they're, they're like, Hey, we're going to do a sniper cell and we're going to be dedicated to this, which is something that wasn't replicated on the other coast. Um, and I was like, Oh man, are you kidding me? I'm just going to do sniper stuff all the time. Oh Yeah. Don't throw you, me in that burr patch. Yeah, and you were the perfect, literally the perfect guy, and they probably were just overjoyed to have you come in there. It with, did it with it the helped. real world experience, yeah. which is serious at that time because no one had it. Yeah, and so it allows you to say stuff to people, and they're going to listen to you. Like yeah. like we were talking about earlier, where if a guy tells you to get your haircut yeah. and he's a goofball and ain't done anything, <laughs> it's like yeah, whatever. <laughs> and and then. So when you're running that sniper course, are you guys now, was that the sniper course? No, the sniper course was already stood up. So now what we're doing, this is what we kind of ended up with at trade at, which is you guys are going out to training, you're implementing sniper things into the overall training, and you're doing specialized training for the snipers. That's what you ended up being that, Yeah, we, so for a little bit, we were still running the sniper course, I think till like 2002 or three, and then doing the sustainment training. And so, you know, we developed the urban course, the long range target interdiction course, which they st- they have a different variant on it now, but um, you know, that's uh, the land, it was under land warfare and the land warfare OIC at the time was uh, Warren Officer Pritchard, Doug Pritchard, who's an mm-hmm. awesome dude. He still works in shooting to this day. And uh, we got a lot of cool stuff done. Like we got the, the ballistic computers which made you know shooting mm-hmm. a whole lot more predictable, and then we could get guns ready to go in a lot less rounds because we had these computers that did it, and we did a lot of good research and development and then tactics that we could push directly to the platoons, which, I mean, NSW snipers are like the mainstay gr- group, I think, of, of snipers in the world. Yeah, no, I'm not was. saying that we're better than anybody because everybody's really good, but we've had a, a really rich history of employing snipers and doing stuff with with snipers, you know, as you well know. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of that, how did you end up doing an augment? Because you augmented to Ramadi, right? Right. And what year was that? 2005. So there was there was some of that video that got released of. Uh, you know, this guy's getting that this couple snipers or whatever it was in Ramadi. And uh, the Commodore at the time saw that and he goes, that's it. And they they had a, a piece of gear that was supposed to help us detect enemy snipers. Mm-hmm. And so they bought some. They gave it to us to test out real quick. And then we got to take it forward with uh, SEAL Team 7 to go, hey, here's this new gear, here's how you use it, and uh, and then it also gave us the ability to get get straight over there and kind of into the fight. So mm-hmm. we Team Seven had just moved into the the shark base there mm-hmm. at Ramadi, mm-hmm. and then we went in there with them. And, and how they, long did you stay there for? Six weeks. How was it? Awesome. <laughs> it was so cool. 
so cool. I didn't I didn't want to come back, but yeah. you know, you come from the strand. I didn't do the work up. Yeah, My yeah. guys didn't do the work up and there's other guys doing PSD and they're like, "Hey, what's up with these dudes yeah. who aren't even at our team and they're going out on sniper missions?" So it's it's not cool. It's combat tourism. And uh, I, I was super lucky that we were able to, you know, be there as long as we were. And then yeah. it was just like, ah, it's time to go. And you did a turnover with the guys that were there? In other words, you taught them how to use the system and yeah, we're did like, a bunch hey, of ops with them? When it got to go out on some ops with them, got to go on a lot of date. Like, my favorite thing to do was go out on daytime presence patrols with the Army or the Marine Corps because that's was so fun, <laughs> you know? And then so... We, we could, to, to get embedded in a daytime presence, it was a f- one slide, five W's, yep. which, which for the planning cycle is really easy. Yeah. It's like going to be approved, no problem. And then if you wanted to mix it up, that's, that's where it was happening, out on the streets with the guys that are walking around using themselves as bait. Yeah. So we would bounce between going out with the Marines and going out with the, the, the Army and and in both cases, it was awesome. But I, I really have a soft spot in my, my heart for the Marine Corps because my dad was Marine. Mm. But when you're in a Marine patrol, it it's like being a part of a big, huge beast that's just walking down the street waiting for someone to bump into it, and then they just turn and go after it. And <laughs> Were you guys setting up uh, bounding overwatches? during that or were you just going on patrol with them? we would go on so so the reason that we would go on patrol is so we could we could look for positions to put up sniper overwatches yeah. and the sniper overwatches were to catch guys placing ieds out yeah. in the road yeah. um and they'd already gotten like three or four because some guys went out on a really good op you know a guy that we both know and they they got two guys who were digging an ied and then there was another couple where they got, and they were they were having an impact yeah. for a little bit. So, well, that meant a lot to the Marine Corps and the Army when they were losing guys all the time to IEDs, and then and you ne- hardly ever do the IED emplacers actually get captured or killed. So, yeah. when they're getting laid out in the streets by snipers, man, those guys were excited about it. And then big time. And then 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 you know you had that whole thing going on with the populace. Because they they began to believe that every building had an American sniper in it, which is a good which is thing. A great thing. That's exactly what you're denying them freedom of movement, yeah. and they got to look over their shoulders before they place you know one one of those one five five rounds in the road. Yeah, yeah. So you get done with that. How much longer after that did you go to Team Three? Immediately, I so got you- back from that, and then checked out a trade at and checked into SEAL Team Three for my platoon chief slot, and. That was an interesting ride, that troop you. Cause, so now I'm at SEAL Team 3, I'm in Task Unit Bruiser, and you're at SEAL Team 3 in your task unit. Uh-huh. And there's that, that one, there was some drama in that one. Right. As and a matter of fact, I mean, Leif and I wrote about it in Extreme Ownership mm-hmm. because this is the story in Extreme Ownership of when the plato- one of the platoon commanders and the task unit commander did not, couldn't get along. And unfortunately, they could not, come to any kind of agreement of how to work together. In fact, you know, the, the skipper said, hey, you guys got the weekend, figure out how to how you're gonna deploy together. And I, I think they could have come back and said, look, 
you know, he, he, he goes there, I'll go somewhere else, we'll, we'll figure it out. But they both came back in and kind of stuck to their guns, which is, no, I don't want to work with him, no, I don't want to work with him. And the, the skipper fired them both, actually. Yeah, that was crazy. That was a horrible, like that had been brewing mm-hmm. for a long time. And so just that drama is so horrible to deal with. Like the, when, and they're, they're both good guys, Yeah. but it just, this drama brewed and then there was all this crazy uncertainty and you know, who's gonna get fired, what's gonna happen as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad the Admiral made the call that he did mm-hmm. and uh, it, it, it worked. And then we, the guy who took over as the TU commit, so we, our AOIC went over and became the OIC, OIC, AOIC, our assistant officer in charge, became the OIC of the platoon. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an officer you read a counseling chit for in yeah. a real early podcast <laughs> that the new task unit commander, the first thing he did the first day was sit down and give him a counseling chit. Legit. That, that, yeah, that's good leadership. Yeah. He's like, hey, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what right looks like. Laid it all out for him. And uh, and that was it. And then he, he was super direct, gave us our left and rights. And then we were just like, oh, I was like, I, I remember thinking personally, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's strict, but that I, I don't care. If you yeah. if you tell me where my left and rights are, especially it's good. knowing that guy, especially because when you're coming and I've said this many times, when you're coming into a situation where there's there's problems, right? Because yep. there's definitely problems. When the OIC and the task unit commander just got fired, there are problems. You have to come in and kind of set down. You have to lay down the law a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, if I roll into a task unit and they're doing great and the one of the guys had a family emergency and he had to leave and I roll in and it's like, okay, I'm not going to lay down the law on a bunch of guys that are doing well. I'm going to go in there and say, hey, I'm happy to be working with you guys. And, and then over time, if there's things that need to be adjusted, cool. Maybe they don't need to be adjusted, but whatever. It's different when you roll into a situation where things are not good and yeah. then you have to lay down the law. The other thing that's very important about what you just said is sometimes people are, sometimes from a leadership perspective, you don't feel comfortable giving direction because you're like, well, I don't really know what's going on. And But it's, it's important to think about times in your life or times in your career when you didn't get good direction from the person you're working for and how just you don't really know what's happening and you don't feel, you, don't, you can't predict what's gonna happen. And so you, you just feel kind of a little bit lost. And then, you think to yourself, man, I just wish the boss would just tell us what the hell he wants. And so that's kind of what happened there. The boss, the new boss comes in and says, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what we're going to do. Hey, you guy that's all jacked up, here's what you need to improve. And everyone, instead of what in your mind you might think, hey, I'm going to piss everyone off if I come in and lay down the law. At this, you got to remember that people have been wondering what the hell's going on for six months, for a year. They don't know who's in charge. Everything's a disaster. No decisions are going to be made. You come in and people go, thank God. Thank you for telling me what the hell you want. I, I'm tired of playing a guessing game every Monday morning about who's my boss and what direction we're going into. So that's that's an important part to remember. Now, I am definitely, there's a dichotomy, of course, because you can come in and you can start barking orders and everyone just says, well, who are you, where'd you come from? You don't know what you're talking about. You haven't been here, shut up. And of course, they won't say that to you. They'll just undermine what you're trying to do and cause all kinds of, you know, just, just try and usurp you with, 
whatever they can. So that's a problem. But what I'm saying is there is a, uh, a happy medium and there are times when you lean towards being laying down the law and there's times where you lean towards being more loose and you got to figure out where that's going to be depending on the situation you're diving into. And, and not, so the advantage that the guy coming in had was he'd been watching this situation for a that's while right. and he knew everybody. So sometimes when you come somewhere new, it's, it's maybe keep just listen before you right. start making some major adjustments or something like that. And, but that would have just prolonged the angst all of us were feeling. Totally. And he came in, he had a big brief. It was, and, and after that, I felt like someone had taken 40 pounds out of my rucksack. Yeah. And it was because you finally knew where you were going, who was in charge and what at least the near future meant, mm-hmm. which think you get rid of what the near future you get with get rid of the certainty of the near future you get rid of who's in charge you get rid of what's going to happen you mm. take all that away and you're just left uncertain and that's a horrible feeling yeah probably the worst well yeah i think from a from a perspective of being led yeah, yeah. having no idea what's going to happen is the worst I, I i talk about that example of rats in a cage and how the rats on one side of the cage, they just get electrocuted randomly from the floor, uh-huh. and but the electrocution isn't very strong. The other side of the cage has a stronger elect- electrocution shock, but there's a little light that comes on that lets them know that you're about to get shocked, and rats prefer to know that they're gonna get shocked. Even if it's more often and even if it's stronger, they just prefer to know that it's coming as opposed mm. to be just randomly getting shocked and you don't know why it's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically where you where your task unit was because there was, I mean, it was like a public too. It was like a public, everyone kind of knew it was going on at least after about six months. You yeah. know, I, I would say after all of us being at the team for it, about six months. It was readily apparent. That's, that's for sure. And and you guys actually, the one of the pieces of collateral damage to that was Mike Sorelli. And Mike Sorelli, he, he, they didn't know what to do with him because I forget what the internal conflict, but there was internal conflict with Mike Sorelli and meaning that I don't even know what it was. But so they said, hey, Jocko, you want this guy? And I'm like, affirmative. Mm-hmm. And then... You came up to me, and I was like, you know this guy? And you're like, yes, he's awesome. And I was like, cool. And there, uh-huh. there was other people that were saying, oh, he's this and he's that. And, of course, the other people, I'm like, okay. And I listened to him, and then I was like thinking, okay. Well, and that's why I think I asked you, like, hey, what's this guy's deal? Yeah. You're like, he's awesome. You're, you're stoked. And I was like, cool, good to go. Yeah, Mike was awesome. Yeah, and, and he was awesome. <clears throat> he's, obviously, he still is awesome. Mm-hmm. And then you guys did that work up, and... Then you guys deployed over to, while I was in Ramadi, you guys were over in uh, Guam. In Guam, Yeah, so I tell you what, if it, if, if it hadn't been contrasted, it, it was an amazing deployment. Like we, nobody got in trouble. We did a lot of great stuff, which, which is a big problem in Guam. Guys just getting in trouble. And uh, you know, the, th- the, the problem was, it was Guys were hearing in real time, like, hey, they just got the first Carl Gustav kills <laughs> in Ramadi, and hey, this is happening. And and I remember one day we were um in we're in Thailand on an exercise, staying in a five star hotel, and guys are all glummy and I had to get everybody at the po- side of the pool yeah. at the five star <laughs> hotel, and I'm like, listen, 
I want to be there too. It's not going to happen. We have to put the mission first. Our mission is to be here. And this is an amazing experience. I guarantee you're going to remember for the rest of your life. You guys got to stop whining. Yeah. Stop worrying about it. And of course, all the guys always joke about the fact that when you're sitting in a sweaty overwatch position and it's 118 degrees, they're like, can't we just spend a week in Thailand right now by the pool? I know. <laughs> well, and then when they used to do that rip, yeah, where you'd go to Iraq and then halfway through come back to Guam, the problem is in Guam they'd be like, guys would get back here and they wouldn't want to do any work. Yeah, um, and they weren't they weren't focused on what was going on, you know. But then that's the mission has got to come first, and the mission isn't always something that you can tell stories about yeah but hey i got to ride elephants i got to sit on a crocodile's back uh i got great per diem i've done neither of those two. <laughs> yeah it was it was interesting too like going back to the workup it was a good contrast for my especially for my officers to kind mm. of see like i'd be watching this unfold and you know i had stoner and leif and i'd be you know we would talk about it I'd be like bro this is what's going on. Fellas, look at this. Look what's happening here. And it was a good contrast for them to see because it made it so obvious like why you have to work together, why these relationships we have inside the tasking are so important, why we need, if you have an issue, you bring it up, you bring it to me, why it's not gonna freak me out, why we're gonna talk about it, why, you know, Leif always says, and Stoner would have told you the same thing, if Leif thought like, hey, I'd like to try this a different way, I'd be like, Cool. How do you want to try it? Go. Let's let's make it happen. I don't care. I don't I don't care what happens as long as it makes us win. So there was a really cool for me. Uh, unfortunately, it was not cool for you to be in a position where I could look and use the leadership failures in that task unit. And the other interesting thing was, like you talk about those two guys. You're like, hey, they're both good guys. I actually know both of those guys and would be getting debriefed by both of them. Like both mm -hmm. of them would be telling me what the other person was doing. And man, you'd just be thinking, guys, instead of telling me, go tell each other, go talk to each other. It, it, it didn't happen. Yeah, the enemy's outside the wire. <sighs> Not always. Yeah. I mean, what were you, what was, what were you, when you're looking at my task unit, what were you thinking when we we're in workup and stuff? You guys are going to go to Iraq and we're, we're going to go to Paycom. Mm. Yeah, that's a, yeah. But that's fine. I mean, that's, yeah. that is, we knew where we were laid out and how we were manned and it was all good to go. It wasn't like we were kicking cans. Mm. Oh, no. It's like, okay, well, that's how it's going to be. Well, they proposed, they made a, pro the command made a proposal uh -huh. that, this was early on. As a matter of fact, I was at Nyland. So that was our first block of training. The command made a proposal that we kind of disassemble the task units and reassemble them in a way that was more fair with regards to who's been to Iraq and who's not. And they made this proposal, and so they made this proposal to us. It was to me personally, to the, to the task unit commanders, as a matter of fact. Hey, that we can rearrange this thing, and that way guys that haven't been can get to go. It was like the fair fairy was coming out, right? Uh -huh. And I mean, I was just like, there's no possible way. But I went back to Nyland, and I sat down with the platoon commanders and the platoon chiefs and the, the you know, my senior chief, and I was like, hey, 
Here's what they're proposing. They're proposing that we could disassemble these task units and we could reassemble them so that guys that haven't been to Iraq can go. And then the other guys that have been to Iraq that have combat experience. And there's all those things you can layer on top of that. Like, hey, because guys will say, well, I can't get promoted if I haven't been to You know what I mean? Like all mm-hmm. these things, they layer all these things on top of it. Because that's a crazy proposal if you think about it. Yes. But also if you think about it, that's how much it means to guys that they want to go. And so now, this is 2005, so there were still guys that had been on shore duty over there that were cycling back in, never been to combat, and they missed the 2003, 2004 deployments, and they're thinking, hey, this is ridiculous. And it's what you talked about earlier, job dissatisfaction. You know, you've been in the teams for 12 years and you and there's a big war going on and you don't get to go. That is the kind of thing you have to consider and think how can we take care of the troops, you know, take care of the guys. Because we want it, they all want to go to war and there's a war going on and yet we're going to send them some of them to not war. But I came I came back to Nyland and I was said, "Hey guys, here's the proposals. I recommend we we they also offered it's a competition." It's a competition, and it was really just a competition between my task unit and your task unit because the other task unit, they they actually didn't, that task unit didn't go to Iraq on the last deployment. So they said, look, you guys get to go this time for sure. And then it was between us two. And they said, we can either split up, blah, 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 do that, or make it a competition, and the commanding officer will decide who's going to go based on performance. And I told my guys, I was like, I say we go for performance and we do the best we can and we will probably crush everyone. And if we don't, we don't deserve to go and we'll go do our job in PACOM. Mm-hmm. And of course, all the guys were like, hell yes. And that's what we did. Sure. And, and you know, like when I was a CMC at Team 5 and I was doing my manning, the hard, fast rule was if you went to PACOM last time, you are not going to pay calm again. Yep. And then, so those guys could get a chance. And then some of the, some of the guys that went to CENTCOM went back. But in the end, when I'm building SEAL leaders, I need guys that have been everywhere. Yep. I need guys that have had the PACOM experience and, and understand they're mature enough to go, oh, the mission is first. And then guys that have been exposed to combat so they know what that's all about. Yeah, you know, and and when you got done, so when you got done with that platoon chief tour, then where'd you go? So because I didn't, because I was in PACOM, I I made a deal with the new command master chief, and, and I said, hey, I know I'm stepping down, but I want to go to CENTCOM. So can I stay here in the capacity of as, as the ops chief for one troop, which was the, and my, the guy who was the OIC of my platoon, who fleeted Jack Riggins mm-hmm. fleeted up to be the uh, um, the troop commander, and I'm like, hey, can I can I stay and go to CENTCOM now because he was going to go to CENTCOM as his uh, his his ops chief, mm-hmm. and they're like, sure, and it's just, I'm actually stepping down. Yeah. Tony did the same thing, yep. and then Tony and I both made senior chief, and they're like, hey, it's time for you to go. He's and. Uh, they sent us over to the Senior Enlisted Academy, and then we went over to SEAL Team 7 together, mm-hmm. which worked out great. Yeah. And we'll get into that later. And you know what? Um, w- w- the great part that you just mentioned is like a three-hour conversation. Yeah. Which we don't aren't going to have right now. Because, <laughs> look, the second part of your career, or the part that w- if, yeah, we'll get into this. We'll do another one. We'll just, we'll just roll. We'll do another podcast. 
we'll record it like tomorrow. Um, and that's going to follow you into Afghanistan, back to Iraq again, more time, more training, more tours, combat tours, uh, tours as senior enlisted, tours as the command master chief, tours as an ops master chief. I mean, there's a lot of massive stuff to talk about from here on out. So we'll do that. We'll record that tomorrow. Good. (laughs) Check. Um, Echo. Yes. While we're waiting for the next podcast, Mm -hmm. I know you probably have some suggestions on what we can do instead of just sitting around and waiting. There's probably some ways that we could get better. Yes, I do have. What do you some, have for recommendations? All right, first thing is jujitsu. Jason, jujitsu. Yes. There you go. I'm a one stripe white belt. Boom. Yes. There you go. So, and so we know what. What, what, you, what, did it, what did it feel like when you got the bug? When did you get on the mat for the first time, legitimately thinking, "All right, I want to know what this is all about." Okay, so the the same master chief that taught us in Guam. Oh, Steve Bailey. Steve Bailey. Yep. I trained with him for a little bit in Guam, and then just got distracted. Yep. And I dug my teeth into it a little bit, but then uh, so like a year ago, I started training out in East County. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was just awesome. But I, I was like a spaz. And I, <laughs> yeah. so is white, white, yeah. white belt death match. It's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, relax. I'm like, well, am I just supposed to lose? How old I'm are you right now? 49. 49. So everybody that asks, I'm 51, can I start jujitsu? I'm 39, can I start jujitsu? I'm Whatever age you are, mm-hmm. the answer is yes, you can start jujitsu. We recommend that you calm down when yeah. you start training. <laughs> What's your rela- I wanted to roll with you. What's your relaxation relaxation level right now? If I was because I if haven't rolled in like six months, oh, but okay. I'd probably be I'd probably spaz out for a hot minute and then <laughs> then figure it out. But uh yeah, because you, you're torn. You don't know what you're doing, but you just don't want to roll over and like, oh, here, I have my arm. Yep, right. So oh, you here, just hang put on me to in a arm. triangle. Yep. And uh, no, the, it's a, it's a, it's easier it's a situation, when you. It's a situation that unfolds that you know is going to unfold that you know is not the correct thing to do, and there's no way you can stop you, yourself from doing it. Like you just said, someone's going to arm lock you. You know what's going to happen. You could just go, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm just. He's got me. I'm going to let him. But no, you cannot stop yourself from gorilla gripping your other hand and hanging on for dear life for an extra twelve seconds before you tap. There's no possible way to overcome that. It's just coming. So yeah, you have to do that. But hopefully, you can make through that. You can make it through that transition fairly quickly. Yeah. It's amazing for my kids, too. Oh, kids, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for kids. Yeah, it seems like the spazzing thing, even as you get it, I mean, obviously it happens less and less, but there'll be like momentary spaz situations, even at like the top level Uh where you kind of got to stay calm. I mean, every once in a while I'll run into it where I got to stay conscious of it. Like, Uh oh, I see the danger coming and it's coming pretty quick. You got to think. Well, I in my situation, I'll think through it and I'll be way more successful uh-huh. rather than like, oh, spaz through it. So now I'm more tired and it's still coming kind of thing. I hate know? to say this, too, because it's horrible for me to put this out there. But there are times when you have to spaz to escape something. Dean Lister will if I do that, he just like he 
he, it's worth it, even if I get out, it's worth it that I spaz because then yeah. he can make fun of me. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, good defense, <laughs> spaz. Yeah. You oh, know? Yeah. He's just making fun of me yeah. because we know, we both know, the only reason that I got out of whatever he just did to me is because I kicked and squirmed and yeah. spazzed out. Yeah. And he wasn't ready for it. Mm-hmm. And then I got out. Yeah, and, and every once in a while it'll work out, but a huge cost. So there's yeah, like two, yeah. th- there's two little additional elements to a successful spaz escape mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. One, you got to be at least somewhat strong. Like you can't True. like a, a, a smaller person like spazzing is way less effective, even mm-hmm. at a high level. There's that. And then when you're strong, when you're a strong person and you spaz successfully, you're way more tired, way <laughs> more tired. So you get a person where you put them in a spazzing state like two, three, three times in a row. Yeah. No more. Oh, yeah. yeah you can't yeah, spaz yeah, more than yes. three times. I don't you, think. You have a max spaz reps of three. Oh, yeah. After that, you're, the next one, there will be no spaz left. Yes, After exactly three right. legit spazzes, there's no, no spaz left. And which brings you back to when, back early on as a white belt or something like this where you know, it's, it's spaz, 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 and they feel the effects of three spazzes in a row yeah, yeah, yeah. hit you, and yeah. you're like, dang, this is exhausting. Yeah. yeah. And then we're like, well, okay, you, start, you better relax. When you start, that's <laughs> jujitsu. Jujitsu yeah. is just spazzing yes, and sir. more spazzing. And then it's like the opposite of when, you know, when, in the beginning, there's these small moments where you don't spaz. Yeah. And then when you get better, there's small moments when you do spaz. Yeah, it's and then when you're really good, I mean, very seldom do I make Dean spaz. Yeah. I do occasionally, though. Right. It gets yeah. a little, 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 little crazy. And you know what? In a, in a way, too, where that's why these, li- these smaller guys, when they're super advanced, I don't think they ever spaz ever. Because it's, it's just been, like, it's been unproductive for them, right? Every attempted spaz is going to be like unsuccessful, uh, you know, and it, and it kind of, you know, it's mm-hmm. a spectrum, obviously. So their whole thing is just thinking uh, through the thing. Andy Burke, sure, he does this. His form of spaz is like this silent spaz. <laughs> He pretends it's not happening. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. But it is happening. The covert, yeah. uh, it's he, camouflage. You know, he's, he, he's doing these like yeah. <laughs> in little sure. movements, yeah. and it's there's only one technique that it could truly be called, and that's a spaz. <laughs> but he acts like it wasn't. Right. He's right. real cool. Yeah, he's real cool. He's acting like that was you know just like a yeah. defense that he yeah. knows. One of his things. I'm on to you, Andy Burke. Yeah, I know what's up. That's a good tip. I'm gonna look out for it. I don't know if I've ever made Andy spaz, but you know. I'm going to be looking out for it. Nonetheless, when you're in jiu-jitsu, we all need a gi if we're doing gi. And I'm not saying you have to do gi. You should do gi, I think. Yeah. should it's, do no gi very as recommended. Well. Yeah. Do both. That's the recommended both. Do, have you trained gi, no gi, both? Oh, yeah. The place we were training at, they did both. Yeah. So Good. one night was no gi. The other night was gi. Perfect. was awesome. That's I got origin geese. They're awesome. Oh, interesting. Boom, so you're already in the game. So <laughs> some people, they, they may or may not be looking, hey, what kind of geese should I get? There you go. Just like Jason Gardner said, origin geese, 100%. Best geese factually, by the Jason way. Jason Gardner with the origin geese plug coming straight off the top ropes. Yeah. He just pulled that out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, I train geese and no geese. And by the way, yeah. I happen to use <laughs> an origin geese, yeah. which is the finest geese in America. Factual. And many people say, the finest gi in the world. Yeah, I, I say that. I say sure. that too. Yeah, and it is made in America, by the way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, when you get you go to originmain.com, that's where you get it. You can also get other stuff, like? Rash guards, sure. t-shirts. For the no gi, yeah. Uh, if your name is Echo Charles. Mm-hmm. No, I shouldn't say that. If your name is not Jocko Willink, you can get joggers. Mm-hmm. Because Max I comfort. don't look 
like normal. I don't I don't know what to say. I look You don't match. I right? don't I don't fit. You don't match. Man. Yeah. Joggers so, are not for me. Yeah. Is it a what is that? Bro, you just don't match. So here, this is what actually this is what it is. Uh-huh. Okay, jogger. You know what joggers are, yeah. right? They're, Do you have they're essentially joggers? skinny jeans. No. Okay. Yeah, they're so they're, they're skinny jeans, they're thinner, sweatpants, kind of mm-hmm. tapered. Well, not kind of. They're really tapered. A little bit of a what do you call like a drop crotch a little bit for uh-huh. like a lot of roomy in the hips area kind of thing. Here's the thing. They're functional, yes, but I think the big push is a style thing because there's like skinny yeah. jeans and all this stuff. So it's kind of like a functional thing, yes, but it's a style thing. That's the part you don't match yeah, with. That's it. And especially anything that says skinny or thin or trim <laughs> fit or what, bro, that's not you. That's somebody else. So, yeah, that's not going to mesh with you at all. In yeah. fact, even to, you know how people have like real fitted jeans? Yes. Right? Like real fitted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say tight. I'm not going to say that. Yeah. Say fitted. Mm-hmm. Tight. You should not do that either. No. Because that's not, not you, bro. That. It's just not you. But the weird thing is the world changes, right? The fashion yeah. changes. Yeah. I just keep wearing the same stuff. Yeah. At some point, is what I wear going to come back? Well, fashion-wise, maybe. <laughs> but actually, maybe you know what? I wear, this is the thing. I think what I wear doesn't, it doesn't, it just, hey, you can't say, hey, this guy's wearing a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. You could wear a t-shirt and a pair of jeans in 1950, mm-hmm. 1960, 1970. Yeah. Never. Exactly. Never go out of style. Quality exactly. never goes out of style. Yeah. yeah, and actually even to be more precise, since yours, you don't go for fashion at all. You go for like this functionality kind of situation. So <laughs> if if anything you do is like fashion, yeah. which I know we have there, a real there's some fashion it. stuff in your past, like maybe hairstyles, etc. That's why if you see old pictures of Jocko with his hair, you'd oh, be like, yeah, they'll yeah. be like, ah, yeah. you, you know, yeah, and it's kind of that. the thing. That's the that's the guy that Jason was talking about earlier. That's me. Like we were oh, yeah. all like that. Like, hey, we we're in the teams. We have long hair. Yeah, look cool. Yeah. Push the I envelope had of white standards. Hair. Long as I could get it, yeah. yeah. See, ridiculous. and that was a fashion thing to look yeah. good. But your clothing-wise, you'll never go fashion, so you'll never go out of style. Because since the fashion is the thing that revolves and goes out of, out of style, origin jeans. Uh, I got like the final kind of cut and everything. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're legit. So that's another thing. Mm-hmm. They're it's not fa- it's not a fashion thing, right? They're origin jeans. Well, they're not mutually they're exclusive either. So they're, functionality. They're strong. Be they're yeah. flexible. Yeah, they're that durable. That won't go out of style. Right? That stuff's not going out of style. No, sir, it's not. So mm-hmm. there we go. Origin jeans. We are in production with origin jeans. In production at this time. So Good. check the website, originmain.com, if you want to get some jeans. Or if your name is not Jocko Willink, you can get a pair of joggers. The joggers are good. That's the thing. Where I I, not, I wasn't down for the joggers. Pete told me this. He opened my, opened my little like uh, mind or whatever. <laughs> I put them on. I was like, dang, these are comfortable. But, man, they're skinny. They're thin. You know, they're 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 tight. Yeah. They had a specific look that I wasn't very accustomed to, uh-huh. but and Pete's noticed it. He was like, "Yeah, they're like you know you gotta." He's like, "Jocko, they're probably not for Jocko, but you pull them off." That's what Pete said to me. Uh-huh. Oh, you believe oh, man. Him. I was like, "Oh, that, <laughs> I, I hope he was like being like honest with it." But yeah, ever since then, I was like, "Okay, maybe I can do this." So I only wore them at camp. So I was like, "Oh, I, I might not wear these at home, but I wear them at camp." And then at camp, I was like, "Dang, these are good too." And when you jog, they're way better than regular sweatpants. So I'm like, oh, these are good. And they're like super comfortable too because, you know, the cotton that they use or whatever. And then I'd wear them at home and that's all I would wear. Now, I kind of switched over to that whole thing. (laughs) For real. 
Amen. How are there's, the pockets? How are the pockets? There's all kinds of life-changing things happen on this podcast. Oh, wait, like One t- of them is Echo Charles switching to joggers. Be noted. <laughs> yeah. Wait, pockets like what? For like functionality? Yeah, or like for my everyday carry. So I'm going down to the store and the joggers. Yeah, I would say like any other sort of sweatpants situation. Same know? deal. No, they have yeah. pockets on either side, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like okay. regular sweatpants. Normal. No, regular sweatpants don't have pockets, bro. Yeah, they do. Oh, the kind you're talking about. Yeah, right? I'm talking okay. about, you know, like the yes. gym coach from 1979. Yeah, those. no, they're not that. Yeah. They have pockets for sure. I got to tell you, I saw those boots online and I'm pretty excited. Right? Yeah. 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 Jumping the gun mentioning that now. Mm, it was on well, Facebook. We're, we're, we're making them. We're making them. Yeah, I have a pair. Available. And yeah, they're awesome. Oh, it's, you have a pair of those too? I okay. do have a pair okay. of those. Good, good, hey, man, good. you got no. your one, your one, like one <clears throat> degree separation from getting all the new stuff to where you're at. Really? Because it feels like 180. And, <laughs> you know, I'm over here looking online at stuff. Anyway, also Mulk, right? Mulk mm-hmm. Train. Jason, we talked earlier. He's Jason, on the Mulk what's train. your Mulk recipe, morning recipe? Okay. So I get up in the morning. I brew 20 ounces of coffee. I grind up the beans, do it in the French press. I add a little bit of stevia mm. to sweeten it, but it's not going to spike my insulin. Then I put some coconut milk in there, or no, coconut oil, grass-fed butter, about a tablespoon of that, some MCT oil, a scoop of vanilla milk. I hit that with a stick blender. <laughs> oh, Get that little I, hitter. I do not have to eat until like one or two in the afternoon. I get all my fat in early in the morning, so I ain't got to stress getting good fat in. And Dang, that's a, It's like, awesome. That's an advanced take. Are the kids the on the milk train? They are. We, we and uh, is it? Have you tried strawberry milk? Did n- strawberry n- warrior kids strawberry milk? No, we haven't. We've been doing <sighs> the chocolate, bro. Um, hot chocolate. Yeah, the hot chocolate's awesome. And, I and Iris has been making the pancakes. Oh yeah, what's, uh. the, what's the recipe on that? <laughs> She's just using it and mixing straight up pancakes. So, yeah, because Echo was talking up. about it the other day. <laughs> I got it from. There's a guy online who was like, "Yeah, milk pancakes." I was like, "Dang, that's a good idea." So I just added the milk. I basically replaced like a portion, a percentage of the pancake mix yeah. with milk. I That's all you do, I don't essentially. Even know, I don't know what pancakes are even made of because I haven't had them in so long. Yeah. That's just wrong. Well, hey, bro, that's on you. And you're kind of missing out on that one because it did. They work out really good. Yeah. What else? And the okay, so protein, we got the milk. By the way. We're on that. We're on mint. I'm on mint. And I'm actually in this whole deal now where I'm having both mint, peanut butter, I don't really, I don't really like the flavor of vanilla, as I've mentioned on here. Yeah. So I don't have that. But the strawberry too, the, yeah. the Warrior Kids strawberry milk, which Brian is working on the adult strawberry milk. The vanilla, like I'm not a big vanilla fan either, yeah. but it just mixes so well. Yeah. Yeah. So like when Iris is making smoothies, it's She's the vanilla milk in there. I put it in my coffee because the mint chocolate chip doesn't work. I'll no, that's coffee. That, that sounds oh, yeah, disgusting. Because it's my favorite. Like, okay, I get to have dessert, yeah. and that's exactly what it is. It, it scratches that itch when it comes along. See, that's the thing, man. I went out last night. I had a legit steak. Legit. At Raglan OB. And I still was needed a little something. I needed a little something because they sell this thing at Raglan called the Illegal, which is a giant chocolate chip cookie yeah. cooked in a cast iron thing oh. it's massive and then they put uh, vanilla ice cream on it which is the only time i like vanilla and the vanilla ice cream is all melting it's just ridiculous yeah. but obviously that's not part of the program <laughs> so i left raglan ob without eating an illegal and i went home and i'm like i still need some kind of a little hitter so i went peanut butter i went peanut butter milk and i just did I did like a scoop and a half with a li- like a half a 
shaker of water. Mm-hmm. I drank that thing. It was so good. I was sitting there saying, this is a milkshake. If this is a milkshake, it's freaking ridiculous. Yeah. So there you yes, go. Sir. And the added protein. Let's not forget that. Yeah. For the and, and don't forget the probiotics. Probiotics. <laughs> you got to yes, remember that microbiome. Yes, sir. It's yeah. true. Very yeah, true. we haven't even gotten to your whole health scenario. Because did you say you're 50 years old or 51? 49. Uh, 49. 49. I'm 50 this year. And you're... Getting after it. I feel great. You feel awesome. I'm walking around at like 157. And and before I had, you know, before I adjusted my diet and everything, I was 193. Oh, and I had all kinds of inflammation and everything hurt and just crappy. And now it's all just dialed in. Yeah, I remember when you were first going down that path because our wives were hiking and you and I mm-hmm. met somewhere and, we, and you were just talking about like, the, you were starting down this path. And yeah. You were coming home from deployment too. Yeah, so that, that'll like, do it for you. This is my last deployment. I don't have deployments to go on and get back in shape, so I'm going to have to stick with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it and um, yeah, so those supplements, joint warfare, twice a day. Do oh. two in the morning and two in the evening. Yeah. And that, that the turmeric is amazing. Yeah, yeah, krill oil in the morning. Every morning, mm-hmm. and then usually, uh, uh, anytime I'm going to do something, the discipline go. Yeah, the discipline go. One. Yeah, the discipline. Uh, JP said the other day when he took the discipline go, he could he could see people's thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, get all that stuff at uh, originmain.com. Sorry, yes, taking a really long time. All good. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. So JockoStore.com, you understand. And uh, yeah, they say if you want to represent discipline equals freedom, this is where you can get your shirts, hoodies. Hats, trucker hats, flex fit. Mm-hmm. Trucker hats, flex, flex fit. I can go either way. Both, mm. yes. Fence walker. There, there you go. No. He's both sides, right? Yeah. He's, it what depends. do you call it? When you can adapt and adjust mm. well, either way. That you bill understand. has got to have a roll in it, though. I am not a, a flat bill ball cap guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, actually strange sense. coming from a California I know. person. Because but that, that hap- that's like in the last couple decades or something. It was yeah. not. Yeah, check. Yeah, either way, there you go. Jocko Store, that's where you can get them. Or sorry, JockoStore.com. Um, also, women's stuff on there as well. Yeah, if you want to represent while on the path, that's where you go. It's good. One. Also, Jocko White Tea. Mm-hmm. If you're deadlifting and you're, like, tired of your, like, 500-pound def- deadlift, tired. Which tired you should it, be. Which, yeah, you know, I can see how you'd be tired of that. Um, and you want it to go up to eight. Thousand pounds, chocolate white tea, and it happens to taste good, and it happens to be USDA organic certified. Yeah, organic, organic. Yes, that's Do, a good one. Now that adds a kind of a little spin because people used to say to me, like, "Did you ever picture that you'd be making tea?" Organic. And and it's kind of funny, you know. And I'm like, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> but now it's like next level. Did you ever picture that you'd be making organic tea? Oh yeah, that is kind of a different thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe Pomegranate. I'll be wearing, maybe I'll be wearing joggers soon. Has <laughs> <laughs> the whole world gone crazy? <laughs> if if you uh, don't subscribe to this podcast, which is shocking to me, but yes. now we have reports from the field of people that listen to 167 podcasts. Uh-huh. And haven't subscribed to it, yeah. and so now Echo has made it clear that you need to subscribe. Also, don't forget about the the Warrior Kid podcast. You on the Warrior Kid podcast? Oh yeah, kids have the love kids, it. Have the kids memorized them yet? They love it. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been lagging. I don't get them out as much as I can. Part of it is because I like really like doing those stories from Uncle Jake, mm-hmm. and they take a little bit more time, and so I need to invest the time. 
the Q, I should just do the Q and A's as well. But anyways, Warrior Kid Podcast, if you want to get your kid on the pot, on the path. And what you, what you and I were talking about earlier of how your kids just don't really want to listen to you. They listen to Uncle Jake. Yeah, absolutely. They just listen to Uncle Jake. Absolutely. I had an, another Master Chief, uh, East Coast Master Chief come out and he came to the gym and he's like, bro. And I never, I didn't know him. You know, he's just like another mm-hmm. guy, East Coast guy that I didn't know. And he's like, he's like, bro, your book, your little warrior kid books. He said, you got my kid. I, he's 11 years old. Everything I did for 11 years to get him to do push-ups and pull-ups failed. He goes, he read that book. I, he's like, I can't thank you because it's awesome. And I was like, dang, it's 100% true. If you're, mm-hmm. your kids are not going to listen to you as much as you want them to, they will listen to Uncle Jake. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Uncle Jake will, will take it home for them. I listen to Uncle Jake. I love those books. <laughs> yeah. I, I've taken <laughs> out as, just reading the books. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I got to fix that. Oh, here's something I could do better. Yeah. yeah. It's true. It's, it's, yeah, it's Uncle Jake. Uncle Jake is who, Uncle Jake has good information. He's kind of everybody's Uncle Jake. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what Uncle it Jake. sorted itself out yeah. to be. And yeah, people, yeah. people will say like, oh, are, are, you know, you're Uncle Jake. To me, and I'm like, I am so not Uncle Jake. If he's I was Uncle, Uncle Jake, Jake, I'd be so much cooler. Uncle Jake is my Uncle Jake. Yeah, too. he's yeah. Too, I'm just a little warrior kid over here trying to <laughs> trying to learn to trying to get on the path. Yep, we are. That's the way it is. Yep. And warrior kid soap, you can get that Irish Oaks Irish Oaks Ranch Speaking of warrior kids, Aiden's making soap on his farm, and he wants you to stay clean. <laughs> what did my one of my kids said today? Uh. Like, comment, and subscribe. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Wait, who said that? When just one of kids? my kids. We, we, I don't just know what we're talking about. Up? Something, you know, oh, mm. some, uh, Instagram this. And, it, and then one of my kids is like, like, comment, or subscribe, yeah, and subscribe. Yeah, yeah. That's going up there. If I start saying that, you get the joggers out. Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah, already making this. organic tea for some reason, which <laughs> is just crazy. But that's a good thing. It's just, you know. I know, it just tastes good, yeah. and it's good for you. Yeah. So these are all things. They just sound kind of lighthearted compared to your, you know, your whole thing. Anyway, also, yes, YouTube, by the way, that's where they stay. That's where you can run into these videos where this, because my daughter sometimes will watch little YouTube videos. And that's what they'll say. Like, comment, and subscribe. Just repetitively. Yeah. So programming. Programming the children. I get it. I get it. Um, Yeah. So Jock's not going to say that. But we do have a YouTube channel. And you're basically right now saying subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you want. And if so you want. Jason says you should like the YouTube channel. You should like it. And then well, I'm over here saying you should comment. Like, comment, and subscribe. Yeah. Well, here, <laughs> here's the thing. I don't know that you can like the YouTube channel. Oh. You like a video. Oh, okay. Yes, which is a quote-unquote like. But here's the thing. You like the YouTube channel. You like the YouTube channel. That's a matter of opinion, right? Yeah. Either you like it, you kind of neutral, or you don't like it kind of thing. Here, That's here, up to you. If, I can't tell you to like it. If you want to have fun, you can go to the YouTube channel Jocko Podcast, and you can look at the people that attack the down votes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be, and, and you know, we don't have many down votes, which is, I guess, cool. Yeah, it's crazy. Or whatever, thumbs down. People right. get mad. People get mad. <laughs> like, oh what my goodness. kind of ISIS terrorist yeah. just gave, who the 13 ISIS <laughs> members that gave this a down vote? Yeah. You will rot in hell. <laughs> so thanks for having my back there. They also <laughs> like, to let, like to let everyone know that Echo looks jacked. Echo looks yeah, yeah. whatever. There's a video that was just released. 
Um, what was the most recent video you just did that just got yeah, released? Yeah, the normal face one. The normal face the one. Overreaction one. Overreaction. Yeah. You you released the video. You are not in the video, Correct. but people were saying that they could feel that you were jacked <laughs> just from watching the video. <laughs> so yeah, yeah that goes that jacked. Psychological warfare. You can get that on iTunes, Google Play, MP3 platforms. If you think you might have a moment of weakness in your day to day life, press play, and you'll get pushed through that moment of weakness. By Jocko, by the way. By me. Yep. Yeah, and in not your, pushed. Your, we'll say spotted. That's better. Yeah. Because some people, yeah. they're not in the mood to get pushed. Pragmatically d- reasoned with. Yes, reasoned with. Yes, yes, pragmatically reasoned with. Very good. Also, speaking of reason, when you want to improve your home gym, I don't know, maybe even your commercial gym, your 24 fitness, I don't know, go to onnit.com slash Jocko. Get yourself more kettlebells like me. Got the Stormtrooper one, by the way. Oh, you're going to break out some... Star Wars nerd stuff over here, bro. Yeah, you ready? <laughs> yeah. So Jenga Fett was the guy that they used for, they're like, oh, you're the perfect warrior. We're going to make all the clones based on you. Yes. And I believe that his deal he made with those people was like, you're going to give me one of the clones back that I'm going to raise as my son who turned out to be Bobo Fett. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, wait, wait. So you're t- you're letting me know because I messed that up. I think so. I think ago. Jade... Yeah, tune you up, and then on the last podcast, it it it, it, it uh, you guys were talking about it again. Yes, is there is there books for that? No, I, I don't know. So. It's just something I that you so. kind of because absorb. you're a closet nerd, Jason. Oh, hey, I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was in high school. <laughs> so yes, yes, and yeah, absolutely. I, and, and and I can be open about it today. I wouldn't have been horrified to tell you when I was in high school that I played Dungeons and Dragons or that got out. But right now, I, I don't care. <laughs> Actually, yeah, no, you got all kinds. You you got all kinds of like little nerd. Uh, no, science fiction nerdism, right? Yeah, I enjoy science fiction. It's a lot of fun. There you go. It's cool. Yeah, my my, bro- you. my younger brother, who's a tattoo artist up in San Clemente, he has a complete stormtrooper costume. So do I. Do you? Yeah. So are you? And Darth Vader, by the way. Are you in the five O? Is it the five O first Vader's fist? No. So well, mine is. I got the stormtrooper uh, costume, like the uh-huh. full one. The, What's five O first Vader's fist? So there's an org. Like there's units or something. There's yeah. There's an organization uh, that does a lot of. Oh, uh, just like work for like going to see cancer kids and oh, stuff okay, like that, cool. and it, it's all these people that are Star Wars villains. And because they don't make, co- no one can make costumes because it's all licensed. Uh-huh. So they have to make them themselves and then you go there and they'll validate it and say, okay, you're good to go. Your costume is good. And then, uh, and I hope I'm not screwing up the unit name, but I think it's the the, the 501st huh. Vader's Fist. Huh. I've, never, I've never heard of that. That's pretty cool actually. Going deep. The one, the one I have is like, I don't know if it's a licensed costume or what. But there aren't like, any. You okay. just—it has to be so good that they're like they'll validate it oh, because okay. Wait, Lucas. There's won't. no such thing as a licensed costume. No, for any for stormtrooper. No, trooper people or just make the stuff oh, okay. somehow. Yeah, the ones I really? costed were like a lot. They were like a, a few. Well, I bought two. There's a Darth Vader one and a stormtrooper. They were like a few thousand dollars. Yeah, that's what my brother paid a few thousand dollars for. Well, not just to have it though. That's oh, the thing. You it wrote was for, it off for Flix Point. Right. So I, I was making these videos called uh-huh. like the hobbies of. Darth Vader. I gotta go check those out. Those are yeah. really good videos. Yeah. So, so we used them you didn't for even that. Reach the potential in those videos. By the way, yeah, you didn't get you didn't get where you needed to get. Well, we were going. I and know. So I'd feature like um like famous jujitsu people uh-huh. or what you know like Jeff Glover, Keenan Cornelius, like uh, these guys. The are premise is 
we're just living our life, but Darth Vader's here too. Yeah, he's kind of <laughs> yeah. here too. You know? So like, he's doing things. So he's going on dates. He, you know, he's doing this stuff. Anyway, it turned out kind of funny or whatever. So there's one where the stormtrooper was in it. He was uh-huh. kind of his lawyer when he got arrested for <laughs> chopping <laughs> Dean's head off. It was pretty good. Yeah, so Dean comes up. He's like, tra- he's like the ex-boyfriend of his date or whatever. So uh-huh. so Vader like chops his head off. Uh-huh. So the next episode, he gets arrested for that, uh-huh. and then his lawyer is a stormtrooper. Um, so that's why I have. I uniforms. love it. Yeah. Do you ever see that one where they did like a cops episode, but it was troopers and they're stormtroopers, and they show up to Luke's aunt and uncle, and it's really a domestic dispute, <laughs> and they kill everybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> real creative. No, I'm uh, hysterical. Look at that it's yeah. old. <laughs> yeah, they, there's a lot of fun to be had with those guys for sure. Nonetheless, I got the kettlebell, and I got it from Onnit, and they got some good stuff on mm-hmm. there. Onnit.com. That's yeah, good spot. In, including Star Wars stuff. I also got some books. Mikey and the Dragon. Mikey and the Dragons. Uh, Jason, you were actually maybe the third or fourth person to hear me read Mikey and the Dragons. And I did it on the beach in Coronado to you and Iris. I was so excited to read it to you guys. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. When you started <laughs> rhyming and the whole thing, I'm like, how did you do that? It's like he's still rhyming and it's still going and this story is just awesome. Yeah, um, super stoked on Mikey and the Dragons. It's, how old are your kids? Uh, eight and six. And what age group can it go down to, would you say? I'd say probably three. Yeah. It can get young. It's got very beautiful pictures that are bright and colorful. There's, so, yeah. And then the story rhymes. It's going to make your kids smarter. And there's times where I was, when I was writing it, you know, they say write at a certain level. But at the same time, I put some words in there that kids aren't going to necessarily know right away. And so they need to look them up or they need to learn them. Poise is one of them. I remember mm-hmm. using the word poise, and I was thinking, well, most kids won't know what poise is. And then I thought to myself, good. Now they can learn a new word. Be yeah. smarter. Yeah, that's a good point, though, when you say, where does it go down to? So three, I would say there. My son's like two. He was like just before two and a half. And uh-huh. I'd read it. I'm more reading it to my daughter. He's there. But he'll catch certain things. You know, when there's like monsters ready to bite, he'll be, you know, like he'll mm-hmm. know certain stuff. So as you kind of get older, you absorb more and more. But, yeah, if you're two, yeah, oh, yeah, books for them, too. There you go. All, yeah. all kids. If your kids are a little bit older, you can get them Way of the Warrior Kid. You can get them Mark's Mission, which is the second book in that series. And now we have book three coming out. The title of book three is Where There's a Will. And Mark he gets involved in some more situations, but luckily mm-hmm. his Uncle Jake is there to help him out. I get so many pictures of kids doing pull-ups Mm-hmm. Working out, studying. They're going to be warrior kids. So get that book for your kids. Get that book for your library. Get that book for your school. Get that book for anyone that you know that has kids. You'll be thankful. And they will be thankful. And they'll come and thank you in. You know what's cool? Going to wrestling tournaments. Yeah. This is pretty cool. I've had kids that are, you know, freshmen in high school. So they're 14 years old or whatever. And they're like, hey, I, I read Warrior Kid. That's why I wrestle. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. yeah. Think about that. So mm-hmm. three years ago when it came out, the kid got it, and now he's wrestling. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Get your kids that. Kids will listen to Uncle Jake. Discipline equals freedom. Field manual. If you want to know how to get after it, there you go. You have to wonder. No. You can just get the field manual. If you want the audio, it's on iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play, and other MP3 platforms. 
Sure. <laughs> Extreme Ownership, first book I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. And then that follow-on book is The Dichotomy of Leadership, which is takes all those lessons and shows where you can screw them up and then teaches how to fix them. Mm-hmm. Dichotomy of Leadership. Mm-hmm. Both those books, me and Leif, we wrote them. Check them out. And then we have Echelon Front. Leadership consultancy, we solve problems through leadership. It's me. It's Leif Babin. It's JP Dinell. It's Dave Burke. It's Flynn Cochran. It's Mike Sorelli. It's Mike Baima. And it is now also Jason Gardner. <laughs> Jason is at Echelon Front. He just retired. And this is what we are doing. He's already got gigs booked, which is awesome echelonfront.com if you need help with leadership in your organization we will help you that's what we do we have the muster in 2019 23 24 may in chicago 1920 september in denver 4 and 5 december in sydney australia every event we've done is sold out go to extremeownership.com if you want to come otherwise it's going to be sold out and you won't be able to come and you'll be all mad, and you'll be mad at me. Mm-hmm. And then someone said that it's like when I went to Lollapalooza, yeah. and I went and saw Rollins, who I kinda knew, yeah. and I was like, hey man, can you get us in? And Rollins said, it'd be easier to sneak you into Fort Knox. And I kinda like, was all hardcore, like, he kinda forgot what it's like in the streets. <laughs> but and it wasn't up to him. Exactly. Now yeah. now I'm the guy. Yep. Now I'm the guy that's going to be saying, hey, it'd be easier to sneak you into Fort Knox. I gave you a heads up. No, you're big time now. So, so check. That's that. EF Online. Online interactive training from Echelon Front. We needed to speak to more people. And we don't have enough instructors. Couldn't run enough musters each year so if you want to know what we teach you want to get granular with it check out efonline.com and finally we have the ef overwatch which is where we take guys that came from special operations and combat aviation they have massive amounts of experience leadership experience they understand the principles we talk about we write about that we teach they understand those and they will bring them into your company you can hire them to work and help your organization win. EFOverwatch.com is where you can make that happen. And if you want to keep this conversation going, which is a pretty varied conversation where we're talking about Star Wars yes, and sir. sniper operations and joggers and D&D. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good spectrum. D&D. You know, you might be that D&D, old school D&D player <laughs> with your multi-sided dice getting after it and if you want to talk to us about that we are on the interwebs we're on twitter we are on instagram we are on the fishy boy echo is at echo charles i am at jocko willink jason is at jason n gardner jason n gardner at on uh facebook Mm -hmm. jason dot n dot gardner on instagram and jason n gardner on twitter and you're new to all three platforms? No, I've been on Instagram and Facebook for a while. Okay, you're just new to Twitter. New to Twitter. New to Twitter. Have you ever checked out Twitter before? No. 
it's mayhem. And then I heard, <laughs> I'm going to have to be careful. No, no, I heard, no, don't. Like, you do have to be careful. Yeah. And you kind of don't. But it's <clears throat> weird. But then I found out, like, they were talking about, uh, maybe it was Sam Harris, and he was talking about there, there's legitimate, there's Russian people, Russian bots. <laughs> it sounds so funny. They're sitting uh-huh. there just trolling. They're just trying to create mayhem. Huh. And so we don't have a lot of mayhem, to be quite honest with you. There's not a lot of mayhem coming at me for whatever reason, but everyone's pretty cool. And it's mm. it's I've gotten a lot out of it, out of Twitter, out of Instagram, out of Facebook, people giving me information, recommending books. Mm. I'm, pro- I'm the, the book recommendations because I'm pretty much exhausting my personal knowledge of books right now. Mm-hmm. And so right now I'm getting so many good books yeah. from troopers out there that are letting me know what's up so echo anything else any other star wars comment well you know not for right now no but now that we know that you know we jason has the knowledge yeah man maybe later but yes for now thanks for (laughs) thanks for being here and jason we'll, we'll continue this conversation you know next podcast anything else any closing comments i'm really excited to be on the podcast uh, I just want to tell my wife Iris that she's amazing and made my life so much better by meeting her. Uh, my oldest son Chase, how proud I am of him, and uh, Storm and Thor, love you guys. Awesome. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Awesome. And of course, um, we actually could not do this podcast or even live the lives that we live if it wasn't for our people in uniform around the world, here at home, our military personnel, police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics and EMTs, correctional officers, border patrol, all the first responders out there, thank you for what you do every day so that we can do what we do every day. And to everyone else that's listening, until that next podcast, remember that advice that Rothgar gave Beowulf that you should choose the eternal rewards, not the short-term ones. And keep it always in the back of your mind that your piercing eye will dim and darken and death will arrive to sweep you away. So until then, keep getting out there into the world and getting after it. And until next time, this is Jason Gardner and Echo and Jocko out.